Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. The Lord of the Rings, King Kong 1933, King Kong 1976, Kong Skull Island, Godzilla vs. King Kong, The Planet of the Apes Trilogy, Jurassic Park, Samurai Jack, The Clone Wars, Back to the Future. Pacific Rim, Evil Dead, Dead Alive, Heavenly Creatures, Super Mario Brothers, The Wizard, and Mrs. Doubtfire. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or giant gorillas, giant 25-foot gorillas that are worshipped by the local culture on a remote island that doesn't exist except for on one map, mysteriously obtained by a movie director played by Jack Black. (laughs) I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I am talking to returning champion and host of the Foreign Invader podcast, Conrado Falco. Welcome, Conrado. Hey, Lou. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be defending the belt today. <laughs> and defending you will be against the, the, the giant himself, Kong, the king, the, the king of the ring. Uh, so, Conrado, why don't you tell the audience exactly what movie we're going to be talking about today? We are, we are talking about the 2005 King Kong, also known as Peter Jackson's King Kong. That is correct. Peter Jackson's King Kong that came out in 2005. To my to my knowledge, or I guess the way I like to my tracking of the King Kong films, this is the third major studio remake of King Kong, right? With the original or version, I should say, not remake. It's the mm-hmm. second remake. Yeah. Um, the 1976 version, I think, with Jessica Lange was the first remake. Yeah, and the original is 1933. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's as far as I know. There are sequels to that movie, but you know, as far as remakes, this would be the the second remake, third version of King Kong. Right, there's like a Son of Kong maybe or like Son a, of Kong, yeah. And it, and it's Dino De Laurentiis, right? That's the guy who made the the first remake in the 70s. Yeah, I I've seen all three versions of King Kong and I remember as a kid watching the 76 version on TV and it's the only one where at any point I felt like I'm not sure if I shouldn't if I should be watching this without an adult around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the one where Kong is a guy in a suit, which I love a man in a gorilla suit. Oh, absolutely. Um why don't we just real quick before we I just want do you have like a ranking of the three? Kong movies, and also let's let's throw uh, Skull Island, maybe Kong Skull Island, onto the table. The mm-hmm. the, the recent kaiju <laughs> movie that came out that's in like the Pacific Rim universe. Yeah, and there's a new one coming out. Well, it's Godzilla versus Kong, so we haven't mm-hmm. seen that yet as we record because I don't think it's come out yet, right? No, that comes out next week. Uh, so actually, oh. at the time of this recording, it came out a few weeks ago, <laughs> and it was great. It was awesome. Can you believe it? Can you believe who won that fight? Well, it better be Godzilla, I'll tell you that. I'm Tim, Team Godzilla <laughs> all the way. Um, I don't know. The trailer shows Kong protecting a little adorable girl, and that's usually a sign that Kong's going to win. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so to go back to your question, this ties it mm-hmm, up perfectly. Mm-hmm. Kong, Skull Island, dead last. I do not want Kong that <laughs> is that big. That is not the King Kong that I like. This dude has just been taking, you know, 
Um, he knows he's going to fight Godzilla, so he's been doing steroids. He's been pumping iron. <laughs> he's gigantic. This is not the real Kong. You know what I mean? He should be disqualified of this fight. Yeah, we need to get an official in here. Uh, we <laughs> there needs to be mandatory testing before the, this battle goes down. 100%. The, he's, he's like 100 feet tall in Kong Skull Island, right? I think so. He's gigantic. It's ridiculous. There's he's no like way. 20, 25 feet. They say that several times in the Peter Jackson Kong. He's like 25 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess in the Kong Skull Island, he's like the size of the wall from Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. There's no way he can survive in that island. That's not an ecosystem <laughs> that can support such, you know, such a large being. Godzilla lives in the ocean, so that makes sense. Anyway. <laughs> Just that sentence. Out of Godzilla <laughs> lives in the ocean, so that makes sense. This is all very scientific. I know that this is a science and culture podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, Conrado. I'm not arguing with your point. I'm just laughing at the severity with which you delivered well, you know, Galileo said the thing about the earth revolving around the sun. Everybody laughed at him. So we know <laughs> who was right at the end of the day. So Skull Island, dead last. Mm-hmm. Uh, that leaves the original, this one, yeah. and this Dino De Laurentiis guy in a monkey suit. Yeah, so Dino De Laurentiis probably goes second to last. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Actually, since around the time that I saw the Peter Jackson version that we're going to talk about. I kind mm-hmm. of like was curious. So I saw that. I don't remember very little about it. Why did you think that you shouldn't have watched it? Was it like sexy? I feel like it was a little bit like risque. It was very risque and weird with risque. I don't remember it vividly. I just remember Jessica Lang in a nightgown and the, 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 the subtext of the gorilla really wanting to like be with her in the biblical sense. And that That's... being weird <laughs> because, because in, in this one, I, this is the one that I would say like they're friends and that is clear from both of the performances. We'll get into that as we mm-hmm. talk about it. That's the huge difference to me is the, is the, the dynamic of that relationship. And that's what made me feel a little bit icky when I watched the 76 one. It makes sense for the 70s. Everyone was high on coke and that gorilla was horny. I can see that. (laughs) Then I would probably, I think the best one is the original, to be honest. We can get a little bit into it later about the stuff that maybe is problematic about the original and about this version as well. But the original is just, I mean, it's a little boring at the beginning. You're a little bit like, oh, I don't know about this stuff, about the natives and whatever. But then once the action starts, the effects, I think, are really impressive. Like, if you take them, I don't know how to say this. If you adjust for inflation of visual effects, those are still some of the most impressive effects that I've ever seen. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I looked up a couple of qu- scenes and, and GIFs just so I could remind myself of what that animation, that stop motion animation looked like in the 1933 version. And I was, I, I really couldn't believe how good it looked for almost a hundred years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And and yes. And Kong, especially back then, he is such an expressive creation. Like, you know, the animation, uh, the way he moves, the character that they are able to get out of it in 1933 is really, really impressive. It's little things like when he breaks the the Rex's jaw and then like sort of like plays with it. He like bats Mm -hmm. it with his hand a little bit. Like that little extra detail that they thought of in the, in the 33 version that took a little extra time because it was so painstaking to do that stop motion. So that little extra animalistic behavior that he does at the end of that fight, that was somebody, something they really thought about. They want this to be part of the character of this monster. 
Absolutely. And, and that he might be the first big movie monster that's that's also a character. Yeah, that's a great point. And definitely about those details. That's what really sells you on the reality of the of the illusion. I always think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the scene, and mm-hmm. a lot of people have mentioned this, the scene where they're in their interrogation room and the and the, they bump on the lamp and then the light is moving from one way to another. That's incredibly hard to do with animation, to convey that lighting on the character. And then you have an actor or, uh, you know, Bob Hoskins interacting with the cartoon. But they did it just so that you can you believe that this is happening for real. Yeah, when uh, when we get into Peter Jackson's Kong, we'll definitely talk a lot about like the, the technological achievements that have been made in that 70 years. Your final ranking, though, would you say like it goes the, the original, then, then the 76 one, then this one, or? Probably original, Jackson, 76, and Skull Island. Okay, I'm, I'm exactly the same, exactly the same order. Oh, I... Great. I think the Peter Jackson King Kong is my favorite one to watch, but for all the reasons that you said about the technological achievement of the special effects in 1933, I think that's and also the fact that it laid laid the ground for the for the story that got remade almost mm-hmm. 100 years later and and multiple times and on Broadway. Like it's such an inspiring <laughs> and well-told, very simple story. Yeah. So just for that, for being the original and for all of the achievements that it made, yeah, I think it is the best one. But this one, this one's my favorite one for sure. Also, the original is like, I don't know, an hour and 40 minutes long. And this one is like <laughs> three, three hours plus. It's double that for sure. Conrado, before we before we dig into the movie itself, since you are the returning champ and you're defending you're defending the crown, you actually have a little bit of competition. I gotta tell you, Jason Karubi has come back a couple times. Oh man. I've had, <laughs> I've had James Reese. Uh he we talked about the Santa Claus too. <laughs> so he brought a dinosaur ro- a movie and a robot movie. Um so you're you're a returning champion, and this is something I like with my guests. You the first time you brought on a robot movie, and now mm-hmm. you're bringing on a, a dinosaur movie. Um, yeah. So what have you what, what have you been up to in the meantime? When last we spoke, we were promoting your show that was about to come out on YouTube called Wormholes. That's and, right. And now I've seen every every episode of Wormholes. I'm a big fan. And so what are you up to now? And what's it been like since Wormholes came out? Well, thank you so much for watching. And I'm happy that you enjoy the show. Uh, and yes, Wormholes <laughs> now the whole first season is out and uh, you can watch it on YouTube, wormholes.tv on YouTube or Instagram. If you search that, you should be able to find the whole first season. It is a uh, comedy sci-fi show about a couple of roommates who live in an apartment that has a wormhole in it. And then, you know, hijinks ensue. I think the kind of person who listens to robots versus dinosaurs would probably enjoy the show. So you guys should go and check it out. I would really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy it. Now I'm going to give you an exclusive, Lou. Is that I called this the first season of Wormholes because... I hear from a little bird that Wormholes has been renewed for a second season that will be coming out in in some time. It's in the preliminary stages, but eventually, fingers crossed, I hope now I hope that I haven't jinxed it by by saying it, but but I'm pretty sure there will be Wormholes season two coming in the near future. That's very exciting news. I'm I'm I, I am genuinely a fan, and I'm very excited to see a second season. By the way, the listeners, the link for wormholes.tv is going to be in the show notes. So if you want to check that out, which you definitely should, make sure you click on the show notes. Fantastic. And other than that, you introduced me as the host of Foreign Invader, 
which is a new mm-hmm. podcast that I'm doing in which I talk uh, with a different guest every episode, not unlike Robots versus Dinosaur, about a different piece of culture, of pop culture, really, from anywhere except America. So... <laughs> You know, we've talked about a bunch of stuff. Like we talked about One Piece, which is this anime series. We talked about The Lord of the Rings. And Lou actually is good. has been on the show. By the time you're hearing this, the episode will be out. Lou was on the show talking about Super Mario, the legend. Um, so that was a great episode. And you guys should check that out. That's right. Listeners, you know that I love dinosaurs. And of course, uh, Super Mario is best friends with Yoshi. And Yoshi's a dinosaur. So obviously that's my connection to Mario Brothers. But actually, no, the the Super Mario Brothers movie is a movie that Robots vs. Dinosaurs hasn't covered yet, but obviously we will. And I, it's something that Mario is just one of the best cultural icons in America, in my opinion. And I think we, you and I had a really good conversation about like we, why we would call him a cultural icon and not just a video game character mm-hmm. or like one of the many things that he is. He really is, he, he, he represents so much. So for, if you want to hear all of my thoughts on that, uh, listen to our discussion on Foreign Invader. Um, what are like? What are some other topics you've you've talked about? Like you said, One Piece and One Piece. Let's see the movie Your Name. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's a. It's also an anime from Japan. It's science fiction. Really great movie. If you haven't seen it, kind of like this body swap time traveling romance. Mm. It's really great. What else? We've talked about some music. Uh, Charlie XCX, who is this British pop star, and Kylie Minogue, who is an Australian pop star. There's going to be an episode of... So this is really stretching the definition of the show, but there's going to be an episode about Gendy Tartakovsky. I don't know if you know him. He's an animator who did Dexter's Laboratory and Samurai Jack. So he mm-hmm. was born in Russia. So technically we said, okay, he can count for the... He counts as a foreigner. And, and that episode will come out soon as well. And I think it's really great. Gendy Tartakovsky also made the uh, the Clone Wars anime. The Clone series. Wars. And we talk about that in the show, definitely, because that's my favorite piece of any Star Wars thing ever. Good, tr- It's a good pick. It's a really good one. Uh, so that's awesome. I'm really excited for Wormholes, Foreign Invader. So Foreign Invader, how many how many podcasts do you have now, Conrado? Because you I do the, cri- the Criterion. The Criterion Project. That's right. Project. So Foreign Invader, I, I do on my own with the guests. And then in the Criterion Project, me and film critic Rachel Wagner, we talk about movies in the Criterion uh, channel or Criterion collection. And that's also a lot of fun if you're a movie buff. Very cool. All right. So there's going to be a link to both of those, uh, both of Conrado's podcasts. So check those out. All right. Conrado. King Kong 2005. This was a a project that I think Peter Jackson wanted to work on for a really long time. I'd, I'd heard that he was originally supposed to to make it in the 90s. I think like around 97 was mm-hmm. when he was working on the original script for it. I don't know exactly what happened, but I guess it was Lord of the Rings happened. And right. fr- like that gave him the kind of clout that let him make his version of King Kong, like his absolute vision of King Kong, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And that's, uh, did you watch the extended cut or the regular theatrical cut for, for this review? I watched the theatrical cut. I have never okay. seen the extended cut, but but I'm, I think you watched it, and I'm and I'm curious to know what is added to it. Yeah, so I watched the extended cut when when this first came out. I was already a big Peter Jackson fan because I knew Peter Jackson from Dead Alive, and <laughs> that was a movie that like. So I talked about when I was a kid. I I saw that '76 uh, Kong on TV. 
And I thought, oh, I'm not sure if I should be watching this by myself. However, for some reason, I didn't, the seven-year-old me didn't apply that same logic to horror movies and like gore and blood and over-the-top cartoon violence in Splatterfest movies. My older brother, he, he got a copy of Dead Alive somehow. I stayed up really late one night watching it with him, and I thought it was just the funniest thing I'd ever seen. It was so goofy, over-the-top, ridiculous, and fun. And I became a big fan of Peter Jackson from that. So when The Lord of the Rings came out, I was super excited because I wasn't even a Lord of the Rings fan. I was a Peter Jackson fan. Mm-hmm. And it, he got me into, he actually got me into the Lord of the Rings, weirdly enough. So then like, I from think there, that was when the it case was, for a lot of us. I, yeah, I was definitely there. When he was serving up King Kong, I was like, I like King Kong. I've definitely seen the the first two, the original two. Uh, I, cause I, you know, as a kid, I felt like the, the second one was the original one also, but mm-hmm. I, but I was like, yeah, if this is what Peter Jackson served me up. I want to see it. And the more I kept seeing of the trailers and the, the pre-production and who was cast in it, the more excited I got. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm overselling it by saying this is one of my favorite movies. Oh, and wow. Conrado, Great. it's, it's a funny coincidence that you've brought two of my absolute favorite movies, <laughs> uh, onto this podcast now. This is exciting because I'll tell you my story with Peter Jackson. Lord of the Rings definitely was it for me. Although I can't believe that I haven't seen Dead Alive yet because that sounds oh, incredible. It sounds like something I would absolutely love because I love, you know, Evil Dead and Sam Raimi and all that shit. I definitely, I, you know what? Tonight I'm going to watch it, I think. I'm thinking to have to Please correct do. this as soon as possible. But anyway, Lord <laughs> of the Rings was the big deal for me the first episode of foreign invaders about lord of the rings because over the holidays i rewatched the movies and it kind of rekindled my uh, love for it and how i felt mm-hmm. when i was a kid so when king kong came out yes like you i was absolutely in in peter jackson's pocket i was like this dude is the dude he tells me that i want to watch a three-hour version of king kong i want to watch it actually I wasn't super into King Kong as a kid. I wasn't super into big monsters. I think what I really loved as a kid was kind of like a team of of fun, cool characters. I was really into the X-Men, hmm. for example. And Lord of the Rings has like, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring and everybody has their own deal and their own weapons and whatever. So I really loved a team. Movies about monsters, I always felt like, well, there's one monster and then like the human characters are not that interesting. So I was, it didn't hmm. gravitate towards that as much. That's interesting because I was quite the opposite. I was really like an action movie and horror movie junkie as a kid. So by the time I got to this movie, like what I liked about the Lord of the Rings was how epic it was mm-hmm. and all the huge battle, cool battle scenes and choreography. So when I got to, when I got to this movie, I liked all of the stuff at the beginning. Jack Black kept me very entertained <laughs> through the first hour. And I really like Naomi Watts a lot, but there was definitely a lot of, a lot of times where I was like, can we get to the island? Yeah. <laughs> I want to see some big monsters. Definitely. But um, I didn't feel that way watching it this time. I, I mm-hmm. felt like I knew more what I was getting into and had the patience for it. And I think that, I really think that all of that laying that groundwork pays off. Yeah. Yeah. Because, okay. So my, my experience then was <laughs> I watched it in, in 2005 when it came out. And I, so I, I liked it. But as it, as it, time went on after watching it, I started to suspect, I started to wonder did I actually like it or did I like it because I told myself that I, that I should like it? For the longest time, 
I've I've had this. I never watched a movie since then, and now for this podcast, and for the longest time, I've always been wondering. Like, I don't think I really liked that movie. I feel like I only liked it because I was kind of like into Peter Jackson, and I told myself that I didn't want to be disappointed, that I wanted to love it. What I was clear to me was that it felt 100% like like you said. Peter Jackson's version of the movie that he was playing on the sandbox. He had the blank check as some other podcasts that are obviously <laughs> inferior to this one would say, but like he got shots fired. He, got, <laughs> he was given a blank check to make whatever he wanted with this movie. And he did. Yeah. And interestingly, what he did was make a, in my opinion, a loving almost shot for shot remake of the 1933 with mm-hmm. clearly he's a fan and like researched all of the the stuff they couldn't fit into the 33 v- version like the giant bugs scene with the, specifically the murder maggots which we're going to get into those things yeah and so like that was like a lost scene from the original and so he was such a kong nerd that not only like not only did he want to remake kong but also wanted to add the, all the lost stuff and not really change the formula too much there are there are big differences with the characters themselves some good some bad but i do think it's interesting that he made such a like a, almost just a loving update and, and and more of an homage than a total remake yeah, it's a classic passion project. I think there are directors who know what is the movie that got them into movies and they really dream of being able to make their own version of that movie. I feel like Guillermo del Toro has talked about that, I think, with Frankenstein and he hasn't gotten to make the Frankenstein movie yet, but he, there's always an article here or there saying like, Guillermo del Toro is going to make Frankenstein now, you know, hmm. uh, finally. And it kind of doesn't happen, but I think that was King Kong for Peter Jackson. Do you think for Christopher Nolan, it was Back to the Future because all of his movies are about time and manipulating time? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But but you can you can feel it in some in some directors. There was another one that I just was thinking about and I forgot what it was. Well, J.J. Abrams, I think you can tell <laughs> that when he got to make Star Wars, you know, The Force Awakens, it really mm. felt like he was, that was his deal. You know what I mean? That's what he wanted to make. Yeah, there's so much in... King Kong that is is for movie lovers. It's for movie buffs because it's a movie about movies. It's a movie about making movies. In this one, it's even there's even another meta layer to it because at one point Jack Black, uh, who is the who's the director of he he's in he plays Jack uh, Carl Carl Denham who is this down on his luck director. Not really down on his luck, but he's like kind of at the end of his rope. He's he's exhausted a lot of his resources and people that he that owe favors to him and producers around town and so he's sort of like nearing the end of his career because he's not going to be able to make movies again because of his bad reputation yeah he's like the opposite of peter jackson at that moment he's like showing his movie to the execs and they're like nope we are not going to be releasing this you better make a different movie yeah and he is he is determined to make this movie at all costs and so the movie the movie king kong it's about King Kong, but it's also about this guy trying to make a movie. And at one point, he's talking about uh, the person that they cast for Andero isn't available. So they're going through some of the other people mm-hmm. um, that they that they might want to call in, like Mae West. One of them is Faye Ray. 
And Colin Hanks's character mentions that she's busy filming with RKO. So literally at the time that this movie takes place, the movie King Kong is being filmed and Carl Denham, the fictional, the Jack Black character, is filming what ends up being the King Kong exploitation film that he can't develop because the film gets destroyed. But it's just funny that like, there's that little Peter Jackson threw that little nod in that in the world of this movie, they are filming the original movie. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of like the insider wink at the audience. And that's kind of comes pretty early on. And that's the thing that let us know. I feel like he's putting it there to let us know that that he loves the movie, that, you know, like this is an homage and he's going to be, that's what this is going to be. It's going to be a a loving recreation of everything. And it it also allows him to create these vignettes and these these camera shots. When you look at them as still frames, like Naomi Watts standing in Times Square, across from from Kong and he's just towering over her and all the city lights are behind them. And she's in this gorgeous like white dress with her hair all done up because she was just in a chorus line. It, it, it like allows for these, these pastiches, these tableaus without them. I mean, they are contrived, but they don't feel contrived because all of the pieces, all of the groundwork has been laid. Like from the very opening, from the very opening credits of the movie, we're getting this Universal Pictures logo, but then that classic Art Deco backdrop with the the stage lights and the sharp lines and the Universal credits. The opening shot goes into, it's immediately just monkeys at the zoo. It's mm-hmm. just a shot of monkeys doing monkey things. And it pulls back a little bit and we're in the, we're in, the, I guess, the Central Park Zoo or maybe the Bronx Zoo. It's this commentary that comes into play later when they get into, or gets paralleled later when they get to Skull Island. Because the the zoo is very run down. There's like one rhinoceros, a couple of elephants, and like a lazy sleeping lion. The sky is kind of gray. Everything's kind of gray. The the grounds don't look very well taken care of. And right next to the zoo, like almost leaning up against some of the fences, are these shack towns that are just Mm -hmm. surrounding the zoo. I took that to mean that Peter Jackson's basically saying, this is New York, the urban jungle, and people are living right next door to these large animals, but they're in cages. And it's almost like in when they get to Skull Island, that's still the natural order of things. There are these people that live on Skull Island, but they've built this giant wall to separate themselves from the the, the, the wilderness, the actual like jungle ecosystem. Hmm. But it is right there next to them. Yeah. And it's the... I guess you can see it as almost a little bit, yeah, you can say the natives in Skull Island have a respect and a fear of these monsters that are, you know, obviously gigantic. So they build this wall to keep themselves apart from them. Whereas here you have a city where we have brought all these creatures and put them in a cage for display. It all goes back to like the Jurassic Park thing, you know what I mean? Like the the folly of man thinking that you can control everything. You can control mm-hmm. nature. You can, it's not hap- going to happen to you. You are the evolved civilization, so you can control everything. Well, in, bo- in both locations, we see that these are, these are civilizations that are crumbling at this moment. In New York, it's the depression. They're showing art. They're showing live shows. They're showing like the vaudeville that our main character, Andero, does. But they're also showing how sparse the audiences are and how intercut with those little 
moments of laughter and and performance and gags and stuff are people waiting in bread lines and mm-hmm. uh, I guess cops like smashing bottles because it's prohibition just around all around the city there's just signs of poverty and struggle and then when you get to Skull Island you see that literally their civilization is sinking into the ocean they have these carved stone structures that the boat almost crashes into it seems like their whole village their whole like city their whole stone city is uh, is just getting closer and closer to the coast. Or mm. really what's happening is the other way around. The coast is rising and swallowing up the island. So they're, right. they're slowly, gradually yeah. fading away almost, eroding. Okay, before we go any further, there's one thing that I need to say about this mm-hmm. movie. Um, as much as I think the movie is, is in many ways very good and, and very interesting and very exciting to talk about, one indefensible thing about this movie is the way the natives are represented. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, let's definitely, because, let's definitely address I mean, that. <laughs> obviously, there is a lot of problems with the original King Kong, where the natives are basically just black people who have been put on some African guard and face paints or whatever. And it's not a great depiction. Then what happens here is that it's not black people, it's Pacific Islanders, I think. They are still made up to have their skin darkened and and to almost look, I don't know, it, it, it's almost kind of like how the orcs are depicted in Lord of the Rings. So it's really strange because I think he he was trying to I mean, I don't know. I can imagine that they were trying to be like, let's make them feel otherworldly so that it doesn't feel as racist or as colonialist or whatever. But by doing that, it you make them like these creatures that feel almost inhuman. So it's like you're really shooting yourself in the foot there. And I think that's the hardest part for me to get through in this movie. Yeah, there's there. I do think that there is a deliberate comparison, visual comparison that he makes to the orcs in Lord of the Rings. And that's not great. But um, (laughs) I think what I think my explanation for I'm not trying to excuse it, but I think my explanation for it is that Peter Jackson is really good at building a whole entire world and spent and getting you to like spend a lot of time in it. He really meticulously builds in all the details. And one thing that's kind of interesting about uh, the Lord of the Rings movies versus the books is that in a way, if you look at it through a certain lens, it makes you consider that like the orcs are kind of like the hyenas in The Lion King. Mm -hmm. It's not really their fault that they're evil. It's just the author's hand is making them evil more than anything else. They don't really have a choice, honestly. They're just the way, they're just the way that they are. And and Peter Jackson seems to kind of want you to think about that, but but this is where it falls apart. He doesn't want to do anything with it. I think it's almost like Peter Jackson, in his mind, is showing you, he's he's bringing you to Middle, Middle Earth, but then pretending like it's a documentary and it's up to you to, to, to make your own conclusions. He's just presenting solid facts. Like, this is just the way of this world. You can make your own judgments. Mm-hmm. But he forgets that he's telling a story and he has the opportunity to say something about orcs being a literal race of creatures that's used for their martial prowess and are designed to be evil and have no other choice. Like there's some there's some way that there could be like redemption for the orcs or like one orc character that resists its quote unquote evil nature, but he doesn't do he chooses not to do that. I guess Tolkien chose not to yeah. do that. Well, but again, like yeah. having a second chance to make some sort of commentary like that with King Kong, he didn't. He did kind of the same thing. He introduced this world like it's a documentary, but it's like 
Peter Jackson, it's not a documentary. It's a story you're telling. These are costumes you're telling these actors to get into. Yeah. And so you're, <laughs> yeah. you're introducing them as an, and there's an opportunity to do something with it, but it just feels like exploitation at the end of the day. It it really does. It feels like I think maybe he's harkening back to to emotions that he felt when he watched the first King Kong. You know the sure. kind of like being a little kid, I assume, and and be seeing those scenes and being really frightened by what was going on. So he had to update the depiction so that it's still frightening to modern audiences. But by doing that, he kind of forgot about the representation element and the human element, which which I think in 2005, I don't know how much we were talking about that kind of thing back then. Uh, I think definitely probably people were talking about it, but it wasn't as center in the conversation. Like if this movie came out today, I think people would be really pissed off about that scene. Yeah, his characters in this movie have they have good they have good values and they also have warts and he shows you both. He shows you both sides of just about everybody, but he doesn't exactly take a stance when it comes to the conflict between these these foreign invaders coming to Skull Island <laughs> and the natives there. Yeah, and I mean they're both fighting for their lives at the moment that they that they confront each other. And Peter Jackson is like, "Isn't that cool? Isn't this exciting?" But not like really taking a side or or they literally disappear from the movie after they sacrifice Andero. Like they yeah. don't they don't come back which is bizarre. Yeah. It's probably for the best, given the kind of shit that he was doing in this movie and the way they're depicted. Like, you know. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, in a different version of the movie, maybe something could have been done with that, something interesting. And and especially because it can be used to underline what you were talking about in terms of the themes of the movie and how the movie opens and that dichotomy between civilization and the natural world and the dangers of the natural world and the way that civilization tries to tame it or is unable to tame it, right? There's a lot of interesting... Are there natives in Kong Skull Island? I can't remember. Yes, there are, because that's who John C. Riley is living with when they find oh, him. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, and they build a boat uh, out of his plane, and it's it's not great either. It, there's problems there, too. <laughs> yeah, well, right. That's what happens yeah. when you're working off of a 1933 Hollywood movie, the adventure, you know? Yeah, the, but we do, of- we, do have, we do have Kong on the brain, though, because uh, listeners, you can get excited. I am going to be reviewing Kong Skull Island with another returning champion, PJ Mancuso, uh, right. previously reviewed the 1986 Transformers. So we're going to be talking about Skull Island in its entirety soon. <laughs> Just a teaser, as a creature feature, I like it a lot. So I'll, I'll, I'll have a lot to say about like the giant things in that movie. But I have more to say about the giant things in this movie, which there are very a lot of very cool ones. When we are, when, when Jackson is, because so Jackson has to introduce all of the characters. He also, the very first thing he wants to introduce though is New York. He really has mm-hmm. to introduce the city because it's it's not just the location for everything, but it's it's almost like the, a big character in itself. It's something we come back to. We see it develop. We see multiple sides of the city. We mm-hmm. see the poor parts of it. We see the rich parts of it. Of yeah. course, we see the parts that a giant gorilla smashes. <laughs> I think opening with the shanty towns in, the, in uh, Central Park is a good, effective decision. Mm-hmm. For when later, when we see Kong on stage with all the f- rich people in the audience, I think that really got to me this time around. When when Kong set himself free and started to attack these people, I was a little bit like, I think I'm on Kong's side here. Like, you know, these 
these people, this doesn't seem like a society that it's like worth necessarily saving. Yeah, that's one thing. Peter Jackson did a good job of making me not feel bad for every single person that bought a ticket to that show. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm 100% on Kong's side. <laughs> a, a, there, a pretty bad show, by the way. Like you don't start your show by showing Kong from the beginning. You got to build up to that. That's a good point. downhill from there. (laughs) You're right. That is the number one issue that they have. (laughs) Biggest oversight. Uh, (laughs) So in in the 1930s, I don't think OSHA was a thing because they show like these steel workers uh, just raising these beams like on these high rises. They're just kind of like standing there, just smiling at each other, waving, like eating their lunch with no harnesses, literally like building these skyscrapers hundreds of feet up. It's, it's, it's like, it gives me vertigo just watching these and little it's historically, short clips of- It's historically accurate. I don't know yeah. if you've seen these pictures, like so many people died building those skyscrapers. There was no protection for the workers at all. Yeah, it's crazy. And it kind of, it, it does, in, it invokes this, not invokes, I guess it lays the groundwork for all of this imagery later of like Kong climbing around on what is to him his natural habitat. Mm-hmm. But when he gets to New York, there's a lot of these like mid-construction buildings that he he's just swinging around the steel girders and the, infra- the infrastructure of them. It, but it's like paralleling that with these humans, these small humans that are just clinging to ropes, clinging to the edges of beams to take their lunch break hundreds of feet up in the clouds, like very casually. Like the, the fear, you don't see the fear in these people's eyes. You just see them working. <laughs> and I know it's actors, but it's like you said, when you look at these photos, these historical photos, little bits of clips of historical footage we have, Yeah, you kind of get the same looks on these people's faces. And again, great way to to start with the theme of the the people's or man's relationship to danger and nature. And And there is, and also like the sense of things falling apart and Anne's Anne's particular hopelessness. Anne is trying to be a, a a comedian. She wants to be a vaudeville performer. She doesn't, she is very aware that there's a depression going on. Her, her gift to society is that she can make people laugh. And that's what she wants to do. And we see her headlining in this show at the beginning, but the show is kind of, it, it's, it's not really financially stable anymore. Mm-hmm. And we see a few people in the audience and there's this really nice moment that I didn't notice uh, until I watched it this time where there's this man, this one man, in the audience laughing very, very loudly and sort of clapping. And he's like, just got his mouth open. And that is a very, very direct parallel to the first time she's performing for Kong. Mm. The way that Kong starts laughing, the way that he kind of, I really think like Peter Jackson cast this extra at the beginning (laughs) to be like, do some gorilla laughs like do some kind of like laugh like as though you you you're part gorilla or something (laughs) yeah i don't know how to describe it he i think he wants you to draw that visual parallel later when he's showing you kong laugh for the first time Mm -hmm. and i don't know exactly again i don't know what he wants to say with that (laughs) other than like apes and humans aren't we similar yeah ultimately i would say i'm not so sure that he has that much to say with the movie other than expressing his love for the original movie and for this uh, for the spectacle of the original movie and i think for me the most valuable the most exciting part of the movie is the way in which he really tries to push spectacle to the limit to make it as big as adventurous as possible i agree and 
yeah, that's something that's something that it it's hard to balance spectacle with storytelling and be good at both. I I think I think Steven Spielberg is one of the best at at doing that. It, but it's a it's a really it's a tough line to 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 dance on. I think Peter Jackson, I would agree he does he he is much better at the spectacle than the storytelling. Yeah, it depends on the movie, but I think in this one for sure, the spectacle is definitely the star of the show. What's one of his movies where you'd say that's it's the opposite? Well, there's this movie Heavenly Creatures uh, from the 90s. I don't know if you've seen this. I um, haven't actually, yeah. It's one of his first quote-unquote serious movies when he was going from, you know, dead alive into different kind of stuff. So it's kind of this serial killer story about these two teenage serial killer girls in New Zealand. It's Kate Winslet's first movie, her first role. She's okay. really good in it. And and it's very much a character study. So that I would say is for sure. I would say that in the Lord of the Rings movies, the two are balanced pretty well, especially in the first one, you know, between the storytelling and the spectacle. And the other thing is that I don't think that spectacle and storytelling necessarily have to, is one or the other, you know? I think the great thing about Spielberg, the great thing about Peter Jackson in his best moments is that they can do a lot of storytelling through the spectacle. True, true. It's it's also one uh, one thing Peter Jackson I think is good at that is another comparison to Spielberg is his restraint. We've cut we've kind of talked about this, but like we don't see Kong until like I think like the hour and ten minute mark of the film. Mm-hmm. Like up and up until then, it is all character building. We're learning about Anne. We're learning about Jack Driscoll and Carl Denham. For some reason, we're also learning about Mr. Hayes and Jimmy on the boat. <laughs> Yes, I wanted to talk about this. That storyline, I was going to ask you if it has any payoff in the extended cut because in the theatrical, it does not. It just has more buildup in the extended cut. I don't know. I don't think it has more payoff. In the theatrical cut, do they show Jimmy getting Mr. Hayes' hat when Mr. Hayes dies? Like he finds his dead body and takes his hat? I I think they don't. I don't think they do. I don't remember that. Okay, because that might be the payoff, because that's really, it's... Right, because Jimmy as a character, you expect him to have a big payoff, right? Because Hayes is being so protective of him, and then Hayes dies at the hands of Kong, and it's very dramatic. And then you Mm -hmm. say, okay, so then Jimmy is going to have to do something definitive in this movie to to pay all of this off, and then it doesn't really happen. It's weird. It is weird weird what i think it is it's actually the it's not the extended cut it's the even what would have been even longer cut if all the deleted scenes were in the movie because mm. for example there's a deleted scene where uh jamie bell's jimmy J- uh, jimmy is is talking to jack jack is is in his uh elephant cage or whatever like typing away And that's where Jimmy likes to hang out on the ship because that's where Mr. Hayes found him in his expository backstory when he (laughs) introduces him. Uh, That really doesn't go anywhere. But but in a deleted scene where that kind of goes is, and this is kind of, this is thin, but Jack is writing about somebody getting, getting stabbed and Jimmy says something like, oh no, that's not what happens when somebody gets stabbed. That's not realistic. This is what really happens because he knows apparently because... Mm-hmm. He's from the streets, you know, he's had this rough right. background that he doesn't talk about and he doesn't tell. And so like, that's it. That's really, <laughs> it's thin because it's like, okay, I see what you're doing there. You're building up this character that can, that has had a real experience that these Hollywood types are are trying to fictionalize and he's able to interact with them and sort of correct 
their notions of what right. Hollywood thinks violence looks like or action looks like. And, and of course, like later on, these filmmakers get their eyes opened. The, the best example of this is like Bruce Baxter being this fake action star. But then later on, we see him literally swinging on a rope, shooting a Tommy gun, rescuing a bunch of people from giant monsters. Yeah. Um, and it's weird. Right. And it's weird because he's that moment. And then at the, at the theater, he comes out again and it's supposed to be like, oh, what a phony, you know I mean? He is not the one who fought Kong. Like, why is he mm-hmm. here? But like you say, then you are, well, but he did like wield a Tommy gun and he was part of the expo- the mission and whatever, you know? So the movie feels a little bit confused in some of that, in my opinion. It is. And and there are a lot of deleted scenes. Ultimately, I I think Peter Jackson maybe should have should have spent like another couple hours in the in the booth, like and made another cut. Um, wow. Are we starting a movement? Is this hashtag release the Jackson cut? Is release this happening? Jackson cut. Give him all the footage. Let him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody like who's telling Peter Jackson he can't though. Like, is Universal really going to be like, no, you you can't have that footage. Like, you can't do. I mean, as long cut. as as long as there's no more visual effects to be done and money to be spent, I think he could do it. Yeah, I, I just don't think he he really wants to. I don't think he has. I think ultimately what it comes down to is he doesn't quite have the focus for for how broad and how large and how epic this story ends up being. I'm, I I do like have some criticism like that, but like ultimately I would still say this is one of my favorite movies. So mm-hmm. um, so I just want to be clear that like as much as I as much as I have fair things to say about Peter Jackson's shortcomings in the in the in the making of this movie and the different versions of this movie. Ultimately, I love it. I love every minute of it and I'm never not engaged with it. So uh, so let's talk about the stuff you love. Okay, absolutely. Let's get into it. So so when we meet Anne Darrow, like I said, she's doing her vaudeville shtick, but it's falling apart. She has this old old friend Manny who has the first spoken line in the movie where he just does a fake sneeze and he's like, "Oh, that's a funny one." Wasn't that a funny one? And he's just trying to do different sneezes because this vaudeville philosophy is literally anything that gets you a laugh. You do anything that makes the audience chuckle. You just do it if it comes to you, if you have the moment. So he's just practicing sneezes. He has the sad moment with Anne where he's telling her the theater's closed. He's going back to Chicago and he says to her what ends up being one of the themes of her character. I know how you're feeling. Like every time you reach out for something you care about, fate comes and snatches it away. And that ends up becoming literally true for her several times in this movie. <laughs> and it's really tragic. Would you say, would you say Anne Darrow is the, is the protagonist of the movie? I would say so. We yeah. begin the movie with her. Um, she spends the most time with Kong. We end the movie with her kind of, I mean, not technically, but the big climactic moment is Kong, the airplanes, and her. And it's all built around her understanding Kong, uh, developing the the respect for this creature, this natural being that society and everybody else in the movie doesn't seem to have. There are people who respect him, like Jack recognizes how dangerous and powerful Kong is, but I don't think he recognizes him as as a living creature the way that Anne does. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Anne Anne has a lot of compassion. She's a she's a good person. She's she clearly like cares about other people. I think I think Naomi Watts is really really well cast as this character. 
It's been uh, Faye Ray and then Jessica Lange in the in the past two movies. I don't think I don't think there's any fair comparison to to make between the three. It's just like all three of them are doing a good job and doing and and doing. They're actually all being asked to do different things. And I yeah. think in this one, Andero is asked to be more of a like performer and a goofball and a a sad person who wants to be happy, which is kind of a big character choice or yeah, it's a big care. It's really is. It's a big character choice because she constantly makes that choice and she makes it clear to you that that's the choice she is making. That yeah. she doesn't want to be sad, even though life is sad. She knows life is sad, but she's fighting against that. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the version of the role that asks the most acting or, you know, from the performer. Like Naomi Watts actually has a role to play and she has, you know, dimensions to her character, etc. I don't remember Jessica Lang. I don't think there's much to that character. And definitely the first King Kong is a bit of a sexist mess in, in regards yeah. to Fei Ray. Yeah, ultimately, all three of these uh, actresses and and depictions of the character are exploited just very explicitly by by the both the director of the film itself and also the director character in the movie. <laughs> right. Who we meet next, Carl Denham, uh, played by Jack Black. We meet this guy who, when he is screening some reels for producers. They're upset because they paid him like 40 grand to get this footage and they don't like the footage because it's, they can't do anything with it. Also, there's no boobies in it. Um, as one of the gross <laughs> producers <laughs> points out, they are trying to decide like how they're going to cut their losses. But uh, Carl is a dreamer and somehow he has acquired this mysterious map and he's hired a boat and he wants to go on location and shoot their movie on location on this island. And he has, he's apparently swindled enough people into getting involved in the project. The producers aren't really going for it. They are going to, they want their footage. They want to take, they want to keep their footage and like sell it for B-roll. And he runs away with it. So essentially he like, he is stealing the studio's uh, reels and footage, even though he shot it. And he's he's now, from this point forward, a, a criminal who just keeps escaping justice. <laughs> yeah, he really does. He's really not a good person. <laughs> he not, is constantly but, but lying I'm, to everybody and constantly putting them in harm's way and never telling them actually what's going on. <laughs> it's true, but I'm constantly charmed by Jack Black's performance at every turn. What do you, what do you think of Jack Black playing this character? Okay, this is interesting. I think that I read somewhere that Peter Jackson cast Jack Black because his kids were such big fans of School of Rock, which is <laughs> one of my favorite movies. And I love School of Rock. And I think Jack Black is incredible in School of Rock and a great performance. So I think what's happening is that Jack Black's charisma and, and personality is what is allowing the character to, to come off not as bad as he might otherwise, depending on the person. I personally don't know if Jack Black is at the top of his game in this movie for me. Uh, I feel like I can still see, and it's tough because I think that one of the, the, the issues with the movie for me, like I said, with the things that are not the spectacle, I think it's because I have a hard time with most of the characters in the movie. I don't know if there's a character 
Anne is probably the one that comes closest to me actually liking them and being like, this is an interesting character. I like them as a person. I like them as a character. I think they're interesting. You know, mm-hmm. for the most part, they're they're kind of hard to like. I I agree that a lot of the characters are hard to like. Anne, Anne is very easy to like, and I'm instantly charmed by her, especially because like they introduce her and she's like putting on a fake mustache. She's juggling. She does that cool trick where she like throws a ball behind her head and kicks it back with her feet mm-hmm. and all this cool tumbling and stuff. So I'm instantly like, oh, I want to pay attention to this character. And then when she is interacting, like when she's going after that producer, trying to get a, or trying to get him to hire her, and she's very tenacious, like I just like her right away. Yeah. And, and I want to follow her. There's something very watchable about her. You're right that it's hard. It's definitely hard to like the boat captain as, uh, <laughs> as gorgeous to- as his blue eyes and accent <laughs> are. Uh, it is real hard to like Captain Englehorn. And Jack is a little bit of a goober, so it's a little. I, it's a little. It takes me a while to warm up to him. With Carl, it's almost too. It, the problem is almost. It's almost too easy for me to like him. I'm too easily talked in, like talked into going along for the ride by Carl Denham. I would probably, if Carl Denham was in my life, and he was like, "I'm going to the. I have this map. I'm going to this boat to make a movie. Are you in?" I can tell you a hundred percent, certainly, Conrado. I'd be talked into it by Carl Denham. I would be. I would be on that boat. He has sort of. Um, oh my god! I can't believe I can remember the guy from Jurassic Park, Richard Attenborough's character. Oh, uh, uh, Hammond, John Hammond. Hammond. He has Hammond mm-hmm. energy. You know, he seems yeah. so excited about this. He kind of like sells you on it, which I think I can see. I can see what you're saying about that. He's definitely a very a more dynamic character than a lot of the supporting roles. So I th- I can appreciate that. To be honest, I think the best character in the movie is Kong himself. And that's good okay. in a lot of ways. But I think that's the, the one that I like the most and that I gravitate towards the most. And the humans, I'm a little bit like, I don't know about all of you. I, I want to see Kong. He shows so much. I think Andy Serkis in his performance, you know, motion capture in Kong, he shows a lot of emotion, a lot of really good acting to be honest and then you know Anne is the closest character to Kong which makes her my favorite of the human characters okay um what about Andy Serkis as Lumpy the cook (laughs) Andy Serkis as Popeye (laughs) 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 because that's 100% what he is and I kind of love it he's constantly squinting one eye oh my god you're right (laughs) and uh and I love Popeye so um, uh, and you know what? I wish there was more of him. I do too. Lumpy, Lumpy is great. There is more of him in the extended cut. Spoiler for Lumpy. The, <laughs> it's not a. I mean, every, every, I guess everything's a spoiler and nothing's a spoiler. But Lumpy, Lumpy has the most horrific death in the movie. Yeah, it is vi- like visceral. It's hard to watch. I have nightmares about it. I really do. Like that. That is an image from this movie when Lumpy gets killed by those murder maggots that I can't get out of my head. It is yeah, horrifying. But in the extended cut, there's a scene that precedes it that almost makes you feel less bad for Lumpy. <laughs> oh, because he's the bad guy. He says he does something bad. Well, he's the bad guy in the sense that he's on Englehorn's crew, and Englehorn is a bad guy. Englehorn right. is a dangerous dude that you don't want to be involved with. And being on his crew, like, there's a... 
there's this implication with all of the crewmates on the ship uh, on Anglehorn's crew that like these guys have been have seen some shit and they've been involved in some shit. They've gotten their mm-hmm. hands dirty in some things you don't want to know about. And Lumpy right. is obviously no exception. <laughs> okay. Fair but there, in particular, there's a scene where he shoots an emu. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> with a machine gun. Oh, boy. Well, he's shooting, like, flies with his machine gun. The man is a menace. The man should not be in this mission. That's, that's what I'm saying. He's reckless, and he, and he just, like, starts recklessly firing. So the scene is that he starts, right, there's, they, they hear this sound crashing through the jungle, and he just starts firing at it blindly. Jack is yelling at him because he thinks it might be Anne, and then they hear, like, the cries of this creature that was shot, and it's this, like, dodo emu creature, giant bird, Oh, wow. And and Lumpy has shot it just by like recklessly panicking, and then he does to his credit he does the merciful thing and like puts it puts it down, but like it's you have to watch like Peter Jackson makes you watch this thing suffer for a few seconds before yeah, yeah. and it's and it's like oh man now I get why he gave Lumpy such a painful death. <laughs> you know what this is interesting what you mentioned about the suffering because I do think there is a there. It's like visceral thing that Peter Jackson captures in the movie about the fights of the creatures, especially mm-hmm. the T-Rex, the fight Kong and the T-Rex or the V-Rexes. The V-Rexes. When he kills the V-Rex that he does with the with the with the mouth when he when he cracks its jaw, basically, the, the dinosaur is like making all these sounds that made me feel really like, oh wow, this creature is like suffering. He's about to mm-hmm. die, you know? I think that's really strong. And you get a sense of, so we're not, we're not on the island yet. Well, I guess we'll come back to the boat a little bit. But I do want to say, like, when, when we see each of these creatures on this island, the first time I watched it, I'm, I'm a very big, like, nature channel junkie. I really, really like, uh, I, I, I'm, biology is, like, my favorite field of science. I love learning about ecosystems and predators and things like that. My first time watching this movie, I kept reacting to things like, no, predators wouldn't act that way. A, 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 a T-Rex <laughs> wouldn't do that. It would run away if it got injured. If it's something punched it, it wouldn't keep attack. Like, I kept having these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Watching it now, many years later, and, like, chilling the F out while watching it and not having that <laughs> part of my brain turned on, what I realized is, like, Peter Jack. no, Peter Jackson's aware of that. And what he's saying is these are evolved creatures that don't exist in our na- in our natural ecosystem they have their own ecosystem and they've developed a certain intelligence and a certain a certain way of survival so a predator mm-hmm. on this island yeah it absolutely would keep attacking you even if you punched it in the face like it's not like a great white shark where you can just hit it bop it on the nose and there you go you're done you, you've rescued yourself like these are intelligent vicious creatures they've survived past the the extinction point of other species like them everywhere else on the planet. Mm. So they've been able to evolve this intelligence. Interesting. And you see that manifested in a lot of ways, not the least of which that realization at the end of that fight that the V-Rex is going to lose and it's going to hurt and it's going to die. Um, there's even a moment during that battle where it's squaring up against Kong and it does, it does, it sort of like hesitates for a second not because it's scared, but because it's like sizing up the odds of the battle and won't really strike until it's certain. And there's this almost boxer or like rest two wrestlers before a match element to it. 
Uh, yeah. That is not a natural thing that animals would, would do. Yeah, behave in a way. Yeah, and it's but I like it's it's part of the it's part of the overall design of the creatures because like these V Rexes have three fingers, whereas a real T Rex or a, the T Rex that they evolved from had two fingers. So Peter Jackson is showing us in many ways, in but in mostly small details, that these are evolved versions of animals that we think we know we actually don't understand them at all. I guess that makes sense because Kong himself seems to be a, a, a evolution of a gorilla into something that could survive in this island. Like this seems like it's the toughest place in the world. This island is like hard knocks and you gotta, if you're going to survive as a predator, you, you can't run away. You can't survive by running away. You have, you have to fight until the end. Every creature that is a predator in the movie never runs away even like i was a little surprised the one that made me think this was the bats towards the end of the island sequence when kong i think kong comes in and then the bats notice him and instead of flying away they start attacking kong and i was like what no fly away bat what are you doing you're not gonna beat this monster yeah it's it's crazy i love the build-up to that they show the bats noticing him and then sort of like checking it out they're flying under the cliff and Mm -hmm. climbing up and peeking over the edge and at first you kind of think like oh they they think they have a chance to get Anne or to get jack because they're Mm -hmm. small but then you see them just no they're attacking kong they're like oh there's enough of us that we could take down kong let's let this is our shot let's take it just do it yeah and you see before that there's a skeleton of a a gorilla the size of kong and the bones are picked clean inside of that cave. he passes by it and like looks at it for a second or maybe that's only in the extended cut did you not see that in the theatrical cut to be honest i can't remember it might be in the extended Okay, so that might be one of the differences. When Kong is takes Anne up into that up into that that tower where where they passed by the bats, when they when he first climbs up, he walks by. There's just this giant the giant skeleton of what might have been Kong's brother or maybe one of his parents mm-hmm. leaning up against the wall, and and the bones are picked clean. And he kind of like I I just said all of this exactly the same way, but he like regards it for a second, <laughs> and then just kind of keeps moving. But right. I think the implication there is that this this thing, Kong, for some reason, either doesn't see them or isn't scared of them. But apparently this thing got killed and picked clean by by these bats. Already. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There is a whole the, what I like about this island is it's not just like, oh, giant monsters and everything's scary because it's big and it's a bigger version of what you're used to. It's like they really thought about the ecosystem of the island, like what eats what, what kind of things are hunt other things. And there's herbivores and predators uh, and carnivores. Yeah, it's just, it's a cool, it's a cool self-contained ecosystem more than just an island full of monsters. Mm-hmm. And Kong seems to be the last of his species, right? Because he's the only gorilla in the island. yeah. Yeah. And he does seem to be, I mean, I don't know, when he was fighting the T-Rexes, I felt like he might not make it. Like in any of those fights, he could lose. He fights kind of like a wrestler in that scene, I feel like. Okay. And most of the creatures in the island have a different way. The predators are all like mouth first, you know, they're all about biting. And, and Kong is more of a wrestler type. So he's kind of like punching. And Unless it's a, one of those giant bugs, in which case it uses all of its horrible appendages to attack. Right. right. <laughs> Right, but he's outmatched on this island. And I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, he's the toughest one of the gorillas because he survived, but it also feels a little bit like he's lonely and it doesn't, and it's unclear how much he can drive there. Yeah. And that it's interesting that he's, he's depicted as the last of his kind because gorillas are naturally social creatures. So mm -hmm. just the fact that he's always alone in the movie is enough to know that there are there are no other ones like there he's not he would congregate with other apes if there was even one more like him he wouldn't just be solitary he wouldn't just be he, an outcast or whatever and also we'd hear them and see them because they're huge so <laughs> but i it actually makes me that looking at it that way makes me think of something that i've never considered before do you think there's some part of Kong, they, the humans built this wall to protect themselves from not just Kong, but everything else on the island. There is definitely a difference to them, to the, to the people on the island. There's a difference between Kong and everything else because they worship Kong. They have a culture based around Kong and a lot of their, their symbology is Kong. Do you think there's any part of Kong that wishes he could be part of their society, that wishes he could interact with them socially because he sees the similarities between himself and them but every time he approaches them it's another misunderstanding or it's another <laughs> thing where they're scared of him and they try to fight him off you know well, that's interesting because they do give him human sacrifices but he does relate to Anne, and i mm -hmm. think it's in part because she makes an argument for herself by behaving through physicality and humor in a way that will make Kong recognize her as a as as his equal in some ways. So yeah, so I can see that. I, I can see that. I don't know if Kong would be consciously, since he's a giant gorilla, one part of that tribe, but I think that he does, like you said, he, he's starved for company and for... Mm -hmm. for uh, of the creatures like him that he can share with. The problem is that in this island, everything either wants to kill you or wants you not to kill them. So it's all about aggressive and protective and defensive. And that's the alternative with Anne is something completely different. And he gravitates towards that. Well, the yeah, the scene, the scene where Anne wins him over is very open to interpretation in a lot of the details of it. But like you said, the the performance of Andy Circus doing facial expressions and body language that that conveys so much, clearly there's an understanding. Clearly there's a communication happening between the two characters. There is a lot of ways that you can read it, though. I think that what what what's being implied is that the the tribe the tribe uh, the tribe of Kong. They make these sacrifices. They offer a, a, a maiden to Kong every once in a while. And I think Kong probably like takes them, brings them to that same spot, and then tries in some way to interact with them like socially as like a smaller version of the monkey that he is. But then they are just terrified as they, sh as they naturally would be. And, and it seems like Anne Darrow is probably the first one that he's brought back to this lair that didn't just show fear or try to run away. And I think, mm -hmm. I think the result of that is that he's not frustrated to the point where he just gives up and smashes and kills the thing, <laughs> kills the tiny creature. Ah, uh, interesting. So this is the first time that he, he is forced to have the patience to develop 
a little more of like, oh, this thing actually is is responding to my attempts to communicate. Let me try to meet it halfway. Or, or I, again, I don't think his his uh, his brain his thought process is that advanced. But I do think it's like there are instincts that gorillas naturally have, apes naturally have, and I mean, just from interacting with primates and like primate science. Uh, there's a lot of proof that they naturally gravitate towards us and see us as similar social animals. And it's kind of like until we start acting aggressively towards them, they're generally calm and peaceful around us and treat us with just like without without aggression unless it's self-defense. So I don't know. I'm trying to make a case for like King Kong <laughs> being misunderstood <laughs> and just wanting friends. And well, Andero being the first person that was lucky enough to somehow survive enough enough extra seconds of this type of encounter with Kong mm-hmm. to to form that base of a friendship. I think the movie definitely is doing something with that. I think you're interpreting it correctly. I, I mean, first of all, it is 100% clear that the movie wants us to be sympathetic for Kong, especially towards the end yeah. of the movie, because it's a tragedy about we, for him. We see him depressed. We, we, yeah. we, if you know what depression looks like on a person, you know what it looks like on King Kong. And, and that's, that's a surprising thing to see, like that level of emotion. Yeah, if anything, I would say, if I was going to interpret the movie, I would say it's probably like a, it's almost like a, like a ecology movie or like a, you know, mm. like a environment movie in the terms of like this natural creature that um, has been neglected or, or you know, the, the, the civilization, the human civilization wants to tame nature and wants to minimize it, build skyscrapers. And when we see nature in its in all its glory, you know, in this giant gorilla and incredible, we cannot process it as anything other than something that's going to kill us. You know, like we can't live harmoniously with it. We can't understand it. And I think that's kind of the tragedy of Kong. And about Anne, I think you're absolutely right that the movie is thinking in those terms. And I think they choose her to be a vaudeville performer with that in mind, they want to set up the idea of like, she has had to be in this situation where, you know, it's a different kind of like live and die situation where it's like, either you get the laugh or you don't. So she's prepared to survive. I think Carl, I think either Denim or Driscoll sa- or says something to her earlier. Or it might be Baxter. Somebody says something to her, like on the boat about like, oh, you do vaudeville. That's a tough, oh, it is Carl Denim. He says, uh, you know, I used to do vaudeville. It's a tough crowd. Mm-hmm. They'll eat you alive. Uh, right. If you don't, exactly. if you don't, if you don't make exactly. them laugh, they'll so, eat yeah. you alive. On the nose. But yeah, it works. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that, I really think it's cool that we're, we're seeing this is, without a doubt, the first time Kong is experiencing laughter. He's never had... I guess it's possible that he's seen this style of physical comedy happen at some point in the jungle to something else. Well, but you never know. His dad, who died, might have been a really funny guy. He might have been maybe. the comedian of the family. If Anne Darrow was a stand-up, if she was George Carlin, her jokes wouldn't land with Kong. No. It wouldn't be the same movie. <laughs> no. But because she's good at these like big motions and tumbling and, and pratfalling and these things that would that an ape would get just by the visual 
act of it. He would get the joke. He would get the humor of it. It because that's her particular skill set. It's what saves her life, and it's what forms the basis of their relationship and lets mm-hmm. them smile and laugh with each other. Uh, lets her teach him sign language for the word beautiful um, when they're watching the sunset. <laughs> he definitely does learn because later on, when he's uh, got it, he's leaning up against the Empire State Building and and they're watching the sun come up. He's he does the same like chest thump, mm-hmm. and she recognizes that. Again, I don't know if that's just an extended cut, but... No, that's definitely in the movie, I think. So we talked about Kong a little bit and his relationship with Andero. I want to I just spend another moment with the ship for a second. Just like the Venture Surabaya, just to talk about all of these people that are going to be dying when they get to the <laughs> island. And, and also to talk about some of the people that I really thought were going to get it, like based on movie rules and who deserves to die. <laughs> Carl right. Denham being number one, who surprisingly don't. They come out scot-free. But yeah. some of these people, for example, on when we're on the boat, we meet uh, Jimmy and Mr. Hayes. Jimmy steals Driscoll's pen, and Mr. Hayes tells Driscoll he found him in the animal pens like four years ago, and he was hiding or whatever. We've already kind of mentioned that like this doesn't really go anywhere. Jack Driscoll is a writer. When Hayes tells him this like expository backstory about the kid that just stole your pen, Jack has no reaction to this. He's like, he doesn't even acknowledge like, all right, well, I don't know why you told me that, but great, now I know it. (laughs) <laughs> like, he doesn't have any reaction. It doesn't seem to come up in any of his stories that he tells later. And I don't see any reason for the audience to react any differently either. It's it's like, why are yeah. you presenting us with this? And it's yeah. coming out of nowhere, and it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> there's two things there. There's that, and there's also, I think Jack Driscoll as a character is also a bit of a of a problem for the movie. Okay. Or, or, you know, like... He of the three leads, which is Anne, Carl, and Jack, I would say of the three human leads, I think yeah, he's I was by say far. Kong. Don't leave Kong out off that list. Now, Kong obviously is the star of the show, <laughs> but of the humans, Jack is easily the, the most boring. The one isn't really there's not much there. Like his relationship to Kong is not very interesting. He's just there to try to rescue Anne, but his actions are kind of inconsequential. I don't know. It's um it's it's he's, the toughest one. He's kind of there to judge Carl sometimes, which yeah. there's a, there's a few characters that are there. Colin uh, Colin Hanks's character, his character entirely exists to judge Carl and to provide a contrast for the evil of Carl. Yeah, and he survives, doesn't he? He get, he makes it to the end. He does. He gets his his face scarred when he cuts the rope to drop the drawbridge. The rope kind of like whip like rope whiplashes his face and gives him a scar. Right. But uh, he does make it after. Uh, Herb, the cameraman, gets eaten by raptors. Mike, the sound recordist, gets stabbed through with a spear. And of course, Carl Denham is going to uh, is honor honor their sacrifice as heroes. And he's gonna. He's, I'll tell you another thing. <laughs> gonna donate the proceeds to his family. Yeah. Um, Mike died doing what he loved, (laughs) what he believed in. That's a, that's a good bit of Hollywood satire that the bit about like, I'm going to honor their memory and donate all the proceeds. Yeah, sure you will. (laughs) It is a bit of fun because it's, it's both like Jack Black getting to, getting to do what Jack Black does really well, which is, which is humor, but it's also a moment for Colin Hanks who doesn't get a lot to do in this movie, but he's really, he's really good with, Colin Hanks is really good even if you give him just a little. It's that first, so this first moment when Mike the sound guy gets stabbed 
Denim is 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 raising a toast to Mike with Herb the cameraman and with Preston, I think is is Colin Hanks's character. And he says the whole like what he says about Mike, Mike died doing what he believed in. And I'll tell you something else. I'm gonna finish this film for Mike and I'm gonna donate the proceeds to his kids. <laughs> Cause then later when when Herb dies, Herb yeah. gets gets eaten by the Raptors. He says almost exactly the same speech. He died doing what he believed in. He yeah, he died believing there's still some mystery left in this world and, and we could all have a piece of it for the price of an admission ticket. Right. Um, but when he says the exact same thing, I'll tell you another thing. I'm going to donate the proceeds to his yeah. family. They show Preston realizing, oh my God, I've signed on, I've signed my life on to this guy and he actually doesn't care about me or Herb or Mike. Sadly, I think the first time Preston really realizes that. I think it I think it's always in the back nagging at the back of his mind, the suspicion that maybe Carl mm-hmm. is lying. Because mm-hmm. he knows Carl lies to everybody, but maybe not to me. Maybe I am actually his friend until this moment. And I think this moment is a is a really sad moment for Preston. It's and you know, that thing that you just mentioned that he says about the the mystery in the world and and justifying this whole thing, this whole tragedy that just happened and the, all the deaths with this I, big ideas about mystery and, and movies and, and the price of admission with just one ticket, you'll be able to have a little bit of it. That's very interesting in terms of what Peter Jackson might be trying to say with the movie. I'm not going to name names, but I've met a couple of people like that in this world who kind of like wax poetic about the the their craft or their art but mm-hmm. and and make it seem like they care and they're great salesmen but then you quickly realize they don't really they're snake oil salesmen they don't really mm-hmm. care about what they're doing or or you or the people who collaborate with them they care about other stuff and that's interesting thinking of peter jackson especially at this moment in his career he's coming off of the biggest success of his career so far, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He just made the most box office profitable movies in the history of the world. He just Mm -hmm. swept the Oscars and won like 11 Oscars for his last movie. And then he comes to make this movie that has been his passion project for so long. And he makes a movie about how movies are exploitative and they can be lies and how Kong, this creature, this majestic, beautiful creature is led to his death by the by the Hollywood machine, basically. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know. You look at what happened to Peter Jackson's career after this movie, how he kind of got trapped into making those Hobbit movies. And since then, he hasn't really made a big movie since. I don't know. He also, Peter Jackson is really good at, maybe he doesn't get credit for this because maybe it's the casting, but he's really good at working with really talented actors, really big names and and big personalities that are, that are very, that put in extremely good performances, but he doesn't seem to have a high opinion of actors because if we're, if we're analyzing this movie about movies as Peter Jackson's opinion on movie making... He really doesn't think much of actors. Driscoll says at one point, actors, they travel the world and all they see is a mirror. And <laughs> like Bruce Baxter is a stark example of what right. Peter Jackson seems seem to think of actors. When we introdu- when they introduce him, he's putting up posters of his own movies in mm-hmm. the stateroom on, on, his, on, on the boat. And like these movies are like, 
this is such these are such good examples of i don't know if these are real titles because they could be but examples of 30s exploitation hollywood films dame tamer rough trader and (laughs) tribal brides of the amazon yeah tribal tribal brides of the amazon is the one where he is swinging on a vine holding a tommy gun which we literally see him do later on Yeah, I think the 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 thing about the actors, though, that seems very tongue in cheek to me. I think that seems mm-hmm. like a bit of a joke, especially since I know that they had such camaraderie on the Lord of the Rings set for most of the actors there. They really formed the family because they were, you know, they were spending years in New Zealand mo- making these movies together. So it's not a it's not a Hitchcockian no, like, I don't thing think or like Kubrick, actors. Kubrickian like treatment of abusing abusing actors. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not I don't know all the details, but I don't get that impression. What I find very interesting is that he shows a lot of contempt for the director character who is himself okay. in the movie. You know, like okay. he has this Carl character played by Peter by Jack Black that is a largely negative character and a character who does a lot of amoral things which i think it's interesting coming from him i wonder what he's trying to get at with all this yeah again it's kind of like with the tribe like it's it's there it's there for you to consider and chew on but ultimately carl carl worms away from everything I, i don't know if he gets arrested at the end of this movie i don't know if the cops come and find him but he's able to like push past a crowd and make this like final remark about no, nah, it wasn't the airplanes; it was beauty killed the beast, and then just walk and disappear into the crowd. And I, I, I hope that the cops have a warrant with his address on it, <laughs> and they are going right to his house to arrest him immediately. But there's also an, a, there's also a, a, an interpretation of the ending where he just gets away scot free, yeah. doesn't pay yeah. for his crimes. <laughs> 100%. And it wasn't the airplanes. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. Come on. Uh, no, it wasn't, Carl. No, it wasn't. It was Carl Denham. It Denno. was not. It was you. But again, I think that's a very poetic line. And it comes from the original movie. But I think mm-hmm. Peter Jackson reframes it in a way in which Carl is saying this again to cover his ass. Just like he said the thing about the ticket. Just like he said the thing about donating the pro- proceeds. He... This man just will not take responsibility. I don't know. The more I talk about the movie, the more I like it. And the more it seems to me like there's something that Peter Jackson's really trying to say here, something personal about, it's almost about separating the art from the artist and, and responsibility of the artists and what they, you know, this is a man who just unleashed the most successful movie of all time to the world and then immediately makes a movie about a, about a subject that he's wanted to make for so long. And the movie is all about, is this good that I'm making this movie? I don't know. I have conflicted feelings. I don't know if I'm, if it's okay that I'm making this. There's two other big things I want to say about Carl. Cause I think it's, I think it's going to help us really figure out what we ultimately think of this character by like as as a whole picture one is a really bizarre moment that i don't think you saw in the theatrical cut so let me get a sense of exactly when this happens this is in the in the canyon of giant bugs this is right after they are getting rescued yeah this is when bruce baxter comes in and uh rescues them and 
Carl is just sort of in this daze after it's happened. And he's, he's actually done like a lot of fierce fighting for his life down in this Canyon. We, there's a lot of shots of him swinging and shooting these bugs and like struggling to get out of there. And he does like surprisingly, he makes it out uh, despite all these horrible giant grasshoppers that are trying to take him down. And he says to, I think Bruce, just as you go down for the third and final time, as your head disappears beneath the waves and your lungs fill with water, do you know what happens in those last precious seconds before you drown? Your whole life passes before your eyes. And if you lived as a true American, you get to watch it in color. It's, uh, that's not in the theatrical cut. I don't, yeah, I doubt. I doubted that it was. It's weird. It sounds really out of context and out of place. And I don't quite get it. Do you do you know why he is suddenly pontificating and talking about drowning as if he knows what drowning is? I looked up the quote to see if it's from something, like to see if he's mm-hmm. quoting a book or so. He's not. It's just these are the thoughts that Carl Denham had after surviving giant grasshoppers. This wow. articulate poem about quick poem about drowning. <laughs> wow, this is so fascinating. I this makes me really think that this is Peter Jackson working through some stuff that he's been thinking. This is definitely how this man, well, Carl, how the character sees the world and justifies the world and his actions to himself. Like he needs to give the world meaning. He sees the world as a movie. So like when you die, you get to see the final product. It is the movies like that, that thing he's driven towards it. Even if he's a selfish person, he has an incredible drive to make this movie. Like he, as many of bad things as he does, lie to people, steal their stuff and put them in, in danger and basically manslaughtering some of them. He does all of that because he really wants to make this movie and he needs to tell himself that 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 that's a worthy thing to do and that, in this yeah. moment of incredible you know after everyone has been eaten by bugs probably the most gruesome scene in the whole movie he has to spin this yarn to kind of make it all worth it yeah that all of these all of these sacrifices are are worth it. He's he's asking for sacrifices from everybody that's involved, but ultimately he is all he is I guess in his mind he's willing to make those sacrifices in terms of he's willing to sacrifice those people. I don't know if he's really willing to sacrifice himself for his movies. He's definitely willing to sacrifice his soul. He's willing to sell his soul for them. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's I think that is what it is what he's ultimately trying to say is like it's all worth it. If we have something to show people, if we can sell them a bit of mystery with the price of admission ticket. Yeah. Makes me think that Peter Jackson's probably a, a, a pretty good guy, actually. Because he's self-aware I, at the very yeah, least. Yeah, and I wonder if he's a Catholic. I feel like he feels really guilty that he gets to make these movies, you know? Oh, and he and That's he gets to take. he gets to be a successful director and Lee live his dream. When there's, you know, the movie opens with like people in the Great Depression. So I think he might feel a little bit like, why do I get to do this? And why do people put themselves through so much work to achieve my vision? It's a weird place to be in. Yeah. And one thing is he he's really good at adapting because when it, when it becomes clear to him that finally, after all this struggle, the film came out of the camera and was exposed and there's no salvaging anything at this point. He still pivots and he grabs that last bottle of chloroform 
smashes it over Kong and immediately puts together a way to recover something from a way to salvage something from this. And he's like, and he's still dreaming big because when he smashes that bottle, he's like, we're millionaires, boys, and I'll share it with all of you. In a few months, his name will be up on lights on in lights on Broadway. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, I guess not interestingly, but we're millionaires, boys. What about Anne? You're not sharing, you're not sharing it. You're not sharing all this money, these millions with Anne Darrow, who went through way more than all of you went through. <laughs> also, he doesn't know that none of those boys are going to see any money. It's all yeah. oh, for Carl. Yeah. Yeah, so especially Englehorn, which the relationship between Carl and Englehorn, I think is interesting. There's a very, so I did actually ask at the very beginning, how did he get, how did he acquire this map? How does a guy like Carl Denham get this map? If he's mixing it up with dudes like Captain Englehorn, I guess I don't need to know the details. I can imagine how he would have uh, gotten this map in his possession eventually. Englehorn immediately tells us the audience not to trust Denim because he doesn't trust him. He doesn't like him. He's been screwed over by him before, but he also, for some reason, still, <laughs> still thinks he's going to get paid by the guy. So he still takes him at his word, but you, you are, I think the beginning of the movie is showing us how strained the producer's relationship with Carl is at this point and how much they're at the end of their charity for him. They're at the end of, of any sort of like generosity towards towards Carl Denham, they're they're done with him. They they, they are they want to be through with him. They want to cut ties with him. Englehorn, we see him kind of at that point too, and we do see the very end of it because they do eventually capture Kong. He gets Englehorn's crew to eventually get the monkey, but like I really don't think after this that Denham and Englehorn are going to work together again. Which I'm not saying that as like a sad thing, but like, <laughs> but but Englehorn Englehorn has has one of the best <laughs> exchanges with Denim. So this is again like this is right after the that weird drowning monologue that he gives. Englehorn says, uh, "Yeah, that's the thing about cockroaches. No matter how many times you flush them down the toilet, they always come back up the bowl." And very very cheerfully, Denim just responds, "Hey, buddy." I'm out of the bowl. I'm drying off my wings and trekking across the lid. <laughs> that is definitely a line they kept in the theatrical cut. I know that yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I mean, that's Carl Denham. Every, at every turn, you see all the reasons why if this were like a, a Friday the 13th movie, for sure this guy's getting killed. He, this guy doesn't make it out at the end, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, any, any. Almost any other version of this film, Carl Den. I believe actually in the '76 one, we see Carl Den get stepped on by Kong when he's rampaging in New York City. I can't recall what ha what his fate is in the in the original original. No, I can because because he's the one that that spins it for the papers at the end when he says, "No, it wasn't the airplanes. It was right. beauty he killed the beast." So it's the same exact. It's almost the same exact ending. Yeah, and I think it's important that he keeps it. I think, yeah. I think it's 100%. This is like a like a Catholic guilt, like a director's guilt movie. It's important to him that he gets to live a, a, to another suffer, day. To like confront his To confront his what crimes. he did. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, to confront what happened. Even if he isn't still in denial at the end he's, when he confronts it? Well, I think, I think Peter Jackson is kind of putting up the mirror and saying like, this is kind of the thing that you have to confront when, when you're in this position. 
because I think that's something that he might be thinking about at that moment. And he's asking his other Hollywood colleagues, I guess, to consider that as well. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm convinced by it, but I am the one who yeah. came up with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So, uh, <laughs> God, we've been talking for almost two hours. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are we still on the boat? <laughs> We're kind of still on the boat. Let's get to Skull Island. They get to Skull Island. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. There is, I'm just, I'm so sorry because there is just one other thing that comes up a few times that first gets introduced on the boat that I want to, I want to unpack throughout the whole movie. The, the, the weird Dutch angle, slow motion, uh, floating camera thing. Do you know what I'm describing? It happens about six times in the movie. I actually I wrote down every time it happens to see if there was something connecting them, like some reason why he's doing it each time. Do you know can, the thing I'm talking about? I think so, but can you give me a couple of clues that will, will reflect refresh my memory of the moments in which it happens? Sure. It's definitely a thing we see in The Lord of the Rings several times. It's yeah. the camera, everything slows down to a slower frame rate. The camera starts yeah. feeling like it's floating and then going in all different directions. And it gets if a little this, choppy, right? Yeah, if it was a 1970s movie, it would be like somebody takes a hit of LSD and then the camera <laughs> starts doing all of these things. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I know what you mean. The, the first time we see it in this movie, mm-hmm. it's when Jack is talking to Carl about the script and they're going over details and he's like, what's the name of the island? And he says, Skull Island. You're not going to like it. It's not good. Skull right. Island. And we see the the slow motion S mm-hmm. K. You right, 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 and it's right. I, that's the most baffling one, and it's the first one. But then, <laughs> but then later, it's when uh, Captain Englehorn gets a telegram that that Denim is a wanted man. Mm-hmm. Then, as soon as they get to Skull Island and they see human skulls everywhere, mm-hmm. that one's understandable. That like sense of vertigo, danger. I don't, I don't feel good seeing human skulls lined up on a shelf. And then there's like a crying child all around. We see it again. Then when Anne is dangling from Kong and sees all of the necklaces that she, and she realizes she's wearing one of these necklaces. Right. The camera slows down and does this weird Dutch angle thing. And finally at the end, when they chloroform Kong. So interesting. So it those... doesn't happen outside of the island. No, it doesn't. The oh, one no, time that it does is in the boat when they write Skull Island. So it's kind yeah. of like a Skull Island thing. Okay. Okay. So what do you make of that? Well, I'm not Time sure. Time moves differently in Skull Island. <laughs> I, well, it, it's all in moments of, of, like you said, of like big trauma or like moments that make you go, oh no, you know, like okay. this is going to be bad. It's almost like a premonition. It's almost like it's selling you mm-hmm. this, is, this is something that's bad. Right, like Skull Island, bad news. Carl is, you know, being prosecuted or whatever, bad news. Skeletons, necklaces, bad news. Chloroform and Kong, very bad news. Might not seem okay. like that at the moment, but it will not pay off in the end, right? Yeah, I guess I guess it's similar to, it's just a music cue, the bum, 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 that like lets yeah. us know, ooh, things are about to turn. Not for the so. good, though. Okay. Yeah, I think so. It's just a little weird. It's just a little... But I Which guess is, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be jarring. It's supposed to be disorienting. Mm-hmm. So it's effective. It's it, And it's unique, right? Not a lot of people are, are using that technique, especially I'd in 2005. Ridley, 
you see it with Ridley Scott. If you go back oh, yeah. and watch some like Ridley Scott movies, um, for some reason it feels very David Lynchian to me. Interesting. But I don't know. I don't even know if that's accurate because I'm not a huge Lynch fan. <laughs> but I, that's sort of the sense, the weird sense that I, the eeriness that I get. One thing I want to just drop and mention, we definitely don't need to spend time on it though, is that J- Jimmy is reading Heart of Darkness. Heart of he Darkness. Asks, he asks Mr. Hayes at one point, why does Marlowe keep going up the river? And that allows Mr. Hayes to give a whole monologue about how he like, needs to know, he has this need to know, and we're accustomed to look upon the shackled form of a conquered monster. There there you could look at a thing monstrous and free. And we really don't need to go too much into the Heart of Darkness parallels with this movie, because again, the movie doesn't really want to either. It kind of introduces it and lets you like, yeah, it's there, it's an element that's there, and does a lot of parallels, but it's not really picking up the pieces after it's done Mm -hmm. laying them down. Yeah, I think kind of like the movie, we should also just like spend a little bit of time saying that ever since King Kong came out, there's been a lot of writing and, and thinking of King Kong as like a story about colonialism or, you yeah. know, parallels of showing that. I think this is a nod to that. Ultimately, I don't think Peter Jackson is particularly interesting interested in that aspect of the of the movie. I think yeah. to him, this is a movie about... This is a very personal movie. It's about him and his relationship to King Kong, the movie, and his relationship to making movies, I think, the more that I'm thinking about it. And it's not really about the big themes of colonialism or something like that. That's true. There is a a, a returning thought I kept having watching the movie, having having the past experience of watching the, other, the original two films, that there is a, there's a difference between technical limitation and restraint with the 1933 version they were doing everything that they possibly could with claymation stop motion uh, effects and costuming and and film techniques to create the visuals that they they could i would say if you went back to those filmmakers and gave them modern tools they would be very excited to make a, a movie with even better special effects that movie, it's it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's a it's an incredible vision, but it's hindered by like the limitations of the time, right? Okay. There's only so much they can show you on screen with given the technical limitations of the time. Peter Jackson has almost the opposite problem, where the, where CG at, in 2005, and especially with the amount of money that he had and the access to animators and people working in that visual effects field, his, I think, challenge with making this movie was not technical limitations, but restraint. He had to have a sense of restraint when when putting things like a giant gorilla or giant dinosaurs or giant grasshoppers even mm-hmm. into this movie. There had to be a sense of restraint, which just evidenced by the fact that we don't see any of these things until an hour 10, that's one sign of it. But also, like, the fact that they're almost always the big scary thing that people are running away from. This is something I talk about with with Spielberg every once Mm. in a while. Where Spielberg, it's always going to be this giant thing shouldn't, it doesn't belong here. It's too big to exist. And it's aggressive. And it's scary. And we need to run away from it. Because that way the camera doesn't linger on it. And Mm. show you the cracks in in the CG or like in whatever technology they're using to make it a visual thing. So I think Peter Jackson does a good job of of staying his hand a little bit with the visual effects in this movie. Because there's none of them 
looking back on it 15 years after it was made, there's none of them that stand out to me as like, oh, that's real bad now. That hurts my eyes now. The brontosauruses yeah. are maybe the most gummy and I was going to say the brontosaurus uh, stampede is the closest one. There's a couple moments, especially when the, the live action actors interact with the brontosaurus, like the compositing is maybe a little bit junkier than you would see nowadays. But for the most, I agree with you. Everything else, yeah. I think, holds up pretty well. They, he does get, I think he does get a little bit excited with that with that sequence. And he does maybe play his hand a little bit. There's also yeah. a line where Bruce first sees them. Carl is like, you have to go stand next to them so, so people won't think they're fake. And right. Bruce goes, nobody's going to think these are fake. Which, that's a bold <laughs> claim to have your actor playing an actor... In your movie about a movie, say that about your fake dinosaurs that you haven't even added yet because they're going to be added in post-production. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's a bold claim. Although I'm really interested in this idea that you're talking about the restraint because I feel like as much as I feel like it's a it's a it's like a balance that he's trying to strike that maybe I feel like he's trying to restrain himself. He's trying to to delay the 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 monsters, but Mm -hmm. once the monsters arrive it feels like he can't control himself and every, and it's so much monster, you know, like it's every, the fights are so big. They go on for pretty long. Although I remember thinking when I first saw it in the theater thinking, Oh, these fights are going on for so long watching it. Now I didn't feel that way as much that, mm-hmm. that the action scenes were over long. Maybe it's just the way that things are now in, in movies maybe have made me reconsider it. But I do think that he goes for a lot of it. And then after he does it, he kind of maybe feels a little, a little guilty, like maybe I should have restrained myself more. Maybe let's get Carl here to say something about that, you know? Well, I think he knows that the movie is going to slow down a little bit once it gets back to New York. So, and it's been a lot of buildup up to this. So I think this is the payoff. This, all of this on Skull Island is him getting to, now we're here, now we've laid the elements and and I've had the patience now it can turn into an Indiana Jones movie mm-hmm. where this happens, that leads to that, that le- they escape from that, but that puts them out of the fire and into the frying pan. Now they have to deal with this next thing. Once they get out of that thing, they're in the jaws of something even worse. Yeah. And you can tell that he loves all that stuff. And we know this because he started out making movies like Dead Alive, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Like he loves gore and he loves horror stuff and he loves stuff that... It's unsavory. And and he knows this and he sandwiches all of this stuff in the island with this much more stately movie that is at the beginning is the, all the restraint and all the setup. And at the end is this very tragic story about how the the Kong is going to die and how he's been wronged by the system, almost <laughs> as a way to justify the middle section where he's having all the fun, you know? Kong, Kong has been wronged by the system. Kong needs a better <laughs> agent. Kong needs better representation. Yeah. Kong is kind of the first big scary creature we see. We see him like jumping through the trees. We see him taking Anne. I don't know how her wrists don't break when he just like snaps the the ropes away. (laughs) (laughs) But then there's this cut scene that that you definitely didn't see where the, the party goes after Anne. And the first thing they run into is this, I, I, you might, you, for, for sake of, recognizable dinosaurs. I'm just going to call it a triceratops, but I think it was a cynoceratops. It's okay. probably some non-existent dinosaur like the V-Rex that's an evolution of a past dinosaur. But this thing 
shows up, it like rampages, it starts trampling people and tossing them with its horns, and they, Mr. Hayes machine guns it to death. At the end of that, I shouldn't be laughing, but <laughs> but it is, it, it is a good joke. Uh, somebody says, aren't those things supposed to be extinct? And Lumpy goes, they are now. So that plus the emo thing are arguments for why I would say like Lumpy's callousness towards the natural world and the fact that he's part of a, a ship's crew that goes into the wilderness and abducts animals to exploit them for zoos are reasons that we don't have to feel as bad for him when he gets consumed slowly by murder maggots. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely, wow, what an image, what a gruesome image that I definitely remembered from all those years ago that had not left my brain. It's the slowness of it. It's the fact that like one of them is already creeping up his leg and it's too late. And then one of them gets one of like one of his shoulders and it's too late. And then it like grabs his hand and now he can't even fight back. And then and it's his then face, his head. And then he's screaming. You can hear him slowly. screaming muffled from inside the, the worm. That's what it is. Those muffled screams from inside. Oh my God. It's sickening. It's sickening. Those creatures are just like disgusting looking. They're slimy. They're like, they have like two mouths, almost like a, like a xenomorph. Mm -hmm. They are horrifying. What, what would you call them? I call them murder maggots or like grub. I think that's pretty, that's pretty accurate. Okay. Murder maggot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I had kind of a, a cute name for everything we see on this island. I I um, wrote down in my notes phallic ass worms. That's what I called them. That's exactly what they are. They're they're penises with with round sharp mouths, and they're horrifying. There are the brontos. I guess I didn't have a cute name for everything, but there's the brontosauruses, the sinusceratops that you didn't see, um, and the raptors, and then. So I'm just trying to, I guess, name all of the dinosaurs that we see on the island. Because <laughs> it's cool that there's there's a mix of herbivores and carnivores. One of my criticisms of the Jurassic Park movies when it comes to the depiction of dinosaurs is you never, ever, ever see a human getting killed. You see them getting hurt and injured, but you never see a, a human getting killed by an herbivore. Mm. So they're not depicted as the same kind of giant dangerous creatures there right. there's this uh dangerous notion that like oh they're like big cows or they're like no these are big, <laughs> big instinctive animals that are territorial and defend their young and we see and peter jackson acknowledges that immediately like these dinosaurs whether they're herbivores or carnivores if you're in their area and they don't want you there they're going to attack and trample you and and knock you off a cliff uh mm-hmm. stampede over you it doesn't matter and if there's something like a giant Komodo dragon, like, yeah, basically, or something with teeth, it's gonna eat you, or like a V-Rex. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've talked a lot about the dinosaurs themselves, but what do you like? What do you think overall of this movie? Uh, keep in, keeping in mind, it was in 2005. I I don't think it had much competition in terms of dinosaurs on film in 2005. What did you think of the dinosaurs hmm. in the in the movie? Yeah, I like the dinosaurs. I mean, I love dinosaurs in general, and I think more movies should have dinosaurs. The extended cut has an extra 15 minutes. Most, mostly, mostly of dinosaurs. dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, great. There's also a giant fish that I don't, I don't think you saw the sequence with the giant fish that no. attacks them. It's actually pretty cool. Like three or four people die. <laughs> um, wow. 
That's great to know that there's even more of of the crazy Skull Island action. And I think the body count comes to like 17 at the end. 17 people die. I love the the V-Rex. I think that scene is an incredible action set piece. And and I think, yes, there was not a lot of competition for dinosaurs in 2005, but I do think that the 2000s, the early 2000s into like maybe 2006 or seven were a great time for action set pieces where we were, we had all this technology for CGI, but we hadn't mastered it so much that there was so much previous stuff or like they prepared too much in advance. Everything was like still being figured out and not every director was doing great stuff. There was a lot of janky CGI in that time, but I think there was a, the, the people who were really good at it, like Peter Jackson, like Spielberg, even George Lucas in some of the prequel stuff and The Matrix, you know, they were really pushing it and doing something, things, really crazy things with them. And I think that dinosaur fight is one of them. It's very exciting. I think so too. I would actually say that apart from apart from the first Jurassic Park, this might be my favorite depiction of dinosaurs on film, dinosaurs in an action sequence. I think that the fight Kong versus what starts out as two V-Rexes and then becomes three. <laughs> yeah, for no reason, just another one shows up. Incredible. It, it is incredible. It's, I think, one of the most exciting action sequences I've ever seen in a movie. And definitely, just because it, it carries that title for me, one of the best dinosaur uses of dinosaurs as a big scary monster, a big mm-hmm. cool thing to look at uh, in movie. Totally. More more so than any of the Jurassic sequels. Wow. The only thing I would say, if you're asking kind of like, is this a positive or negative for dinosaurs like you do? I think it's probably a positive. The only issue I could bring to the table is that the dinosaurs are definitely in a supporting role, you know? Like the movie does not belong to the dinosaurs. And whenever they're pitted against something else, they're constantly losing. The, the Sinoceratops gets killed by Hayes immediately. A lot of the Brontosauruses stampede themselves off a cliff along with some of the raptors. So a lot of the raptors get shot by the people. And then the V-Rexes all... Well, first, the uh, what's called a photodon. We have this like giant Komodo dragon that tries to eat Anne. Mm-hmm. And it gets eaten by the V-Rex. But then the V-Rexes, all three of them get killed one by one by Kong during this fight. I, I would give them plus one just for the cool depiction of them. But if we're going by like their ability to win cage matches, <laughs> the dinosaurs definitely get a minus one in this movie. Yeah, well, don't Godzilla is coming to avenge them. Yeah, so <laughs> maybe we should like make some predictions for how how that fight's gonna go. Who's your? You said your money's on Godzilla. No, my money's on Kong because I think that you know there's a little bit of xenophobia, and Kong is perceived as the American one. Godzilla's kind of the Japanese one. I would have expected it to be kind of like a Batman versus Superman kind of thing, where neither one actually wins; they kind of like team up. But apparently mm-hmm. they've been saying that there is going to be a winner of the fight. My heart's with Godzilla. That's what I'm, who I'm rooting for. But I think it's probably going to be Kong. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have thoughts? I think only, only because I saw the trailer, and this is why I try to avoid trailers, only because I saw the trailer, it looks like they're, they have this little girl that's going to be pro- maybe the main character, and she has a relationship with Kong, and Kong wants to protect her. 
So for that reason alone, I, I don't see right. I don't see Godzilla. I don't see Godzilla killing Kong. I don't necessarily see Kong killing Godzilla either. I see them fighting to the point where some larger threat appears. One, uh, I guess Kong realizes that both their moms are named Martha. <laughs> they, yeah, exactly. And they decide they have to fight against the larger threat. Because Godzilla, the last Godzilla movie showed us like there are bigger threats out there. There are other kaiju out there. Hmm. It's going to so, be like, wait, did you grow up in Skull Island? Hey, I grew up in Skull Island. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> I also think it's interesting that the way in which Kong's relationship to women has developed over the years, you know, okay. starts out kind of like really building off of this kind of anxiety and honestly kind of racist paranoia of white women and non-white men in the 30s. In the 70s, mm. very horny Kong, very horny vibe. By the time we get to the 2005 version, Peter Jackson, like you said, the relationship is much, it's far less sexual. It's, it's, if anything, it's more romantic, platonic, friendship-like. And now he's paired up with a little girl. So even more like the sexuality is being taken out of it little by little in every incarnation. Which I, I think honestly is important because it makes it, it makes it harder to focus on this, on the story and the characterization of Kong if he's reduced to just that, if he's reduced to this base instinct, animalistic brute that wants nothing more than just to mate with this tiny female creature. Like that's a, yeah. that's such a base depiction. If it's reduced, if it's distilled down to that, it kind of makes it hard for me to focus because I don't want to have as much sympathy for Kong if I'm constantly worried about the implication of like, if Kong ends up alone with this girl, like what's going to happen. I don't want to, I Dino De Laurentiis definitely wants to think about that. And I think he, I think it's his fetish, but I, <laughs> I kind of want to think about other things when it comes to the Kong story. And I want to think about the relationship between man and nature. Sure. Yeah, it's the, it's the problematic element that's been there from the beginning and, and that is tough to address. I think it, it, it's interesting in its own way, but it's more interesting looking back at it and trying to understand what was going on in people's minds at the time than to replicate it. I, I, I agree okay. with that, you know? Well, good news, Conrado, we're off Skull Island. We're back in New York <laughs> because that leads me to my next question. So I think let's, let's talk about the whole New York sequence now. One, so one thing is when you talked about how like Denim show is bad. It's bad. It looks like it's a bad show. Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, Carl Denim's giant monster, C and Darrow offered to the beast. And there's this reveal. So actually one cool little detail. When the show is starting, the curtain's lifting, the orchestra is playing the, uh, the what what I immediately recognize my ear immediately recognized as the 20th Century Fox fanfare. It must be it must have been cool to like see an orchestra play that right before a live show before it was just a stinger at the beginning of every movie that's produced by Fox. Like there's something right. about that and that little detail that that brought me from Skull Island back into oh this is a whole different world again New York. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's an orchestra, there's brass, there's people in tuxedos. There's all of these, tra- this whole theater that they're inside of with these red seats and balconies and a fake Andero. This is a huge fake out because I think in the original movie, it's actually Andero, the character doing the stage Kong. He just kind of takes her out of the theater. But in this one, they get like another, I guess Anne wouldn't do it. 
uh, for understandable reasons. Yeah. Thank goodness she has a little bit of agency. But uh, but it's this fake actress. Uh, Not well, she's a real actress, but it's this fake Antero played by an actress. Which I thought was strange that they would still use her name. I mean, it works for the fake out, but like wouldn't they have like can they even do that like you know if she's not in the show can they just use her name also she's not like a star actress so it's not like she's gonna drive people to come see it unless maybe people know that she was on the boat i don't know at the end of the day it doesn't matter it's it's like a cool fake out moment i think Anne darrow's name would be in the papers and people mm-hmm. would want to see and darrow a depiction of the story of and darrow what happened in the island what right? happened on the island because because they got bruce to come in and play bruce baxter but and they yeah and they are presenting the show as kind of like a recreation of the adventure that we went on right and bruce is willing to play a even more fictionalized heightened version of himself but Anne wasn't and that's but i don't think the off from the audience perspective i don't think they care one way or another if this is the real andero no. or an actress yeah, they're, they're they just know here who to she see is. the story of what happened i think it would probably sell more tickets if it was the genuine article but i don't think that's something that like Carl Denham's not going to do the show if he can't get Anne, right? No, of course not. It's, it's really, if he's got Kong, everything else he can figure out and he can replace. But Kong doesn't like substitutes. And here's the, here's, here's the way I want to ask this question. What, I, I just want you to describe in your own words how Kong reacts to fake Anne Darrow. Because I think that the way that you describe it colors like what you think of Kong and how we judge Kong. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I think it's a mix of, yeah, because he's been offered women in that way in the past, in the island. Mm-hmm. And now again, but now that he knows Anne, he cannot go back, right? Because now they're not just, I mean, we never see his relationship to any of the other women that are offered to him. So we don't know. But he's had a special connection with her and he will now not accept the other one, depending on how intelligent you think Kong is, it's even almost a, a, a fury of, do you think you can trick me? Like, I'm not stupid. You know, I know this is not Anne. Yeah, the only thing we really know about his interactions from the previous ones is he collects their necklaces and keeps them all in one place. We don't really know exactly what that means. But yeah, when he sees this fake Anne, he knows immediately uh, as soon as soon as he, soon as, like, I think from the back he's tricked, but when she turns around and he sees her face... I think that's the moment of clarity for him. And they're showing him, I, th- I described like when the curtain comes up and they and they just show Kong in chains, he is depressed, visibly yeah. depressed. He's defeated. He's not even fighting back anymore. He's given up. He's accepted that this is his reality now. And he kind of is just going, he's just going to go along with it because whatever, at least Anne is there. At least I can see Anne and then when she turns around and it's he doesn't even have that it's like nope that's that's the last straw y'all like <laughs> yeah. i i calmed down enough to do your show but now i'm not calm anymore i'm out of calm i've run out of my calm tank is empty <laughs> he gets furious about that it's it's and, the thing that propels him to free himself and kill everybody basically yeah so well that does this does this actress but also you know what but end also up in the hospital Oh, uh, yeah, I think she's dead. To be That's what, okay. That's what I think, too. Okay. Yeah. But I was going to say that I think also the remembrance of Anne, the fact that he's reminded of his exist of her existence, also gives him the will 
to make himself free and to fight mm -hmm. against, you know, the depression and the death. And there's multiple perspectives that we're seeing this carnage happen from. We're seeing it from Kong's perspective because, you know, he's frustrated, he's getting fooled and exploited, and he is fighting back against that. But when we see it from, like, that actress's perspective and how terrifying this is, and then when he's out on the streets and he's, I, I think, like, you can make this comparison that he's, like, a serial killer at that point. He's, like, he's like the... He's like the T-800. Any size four blonde that he can see, yeah, he's he going to pick them up, them. assess them. If it's not right, it's not like he's slamming them against the ground, biting their head off, like any of those things that we've seen him do previously to other, like to the boat crew, but he just casually tosses them aside. I don't think Kong is thinking about, if I toss this girl, her bones are going to break and she's going to die. I think he's- no. It's like it's like looking at a bad apple and you're like, oh, not this one. Yeah. And you're searching for the good apple that you want to eat or something. That casual tossing is is the most terrifying part of it because there's no reasoning with it at this point. The <laughs> only thing that's going to stop this rampage is killing it or Anne Darrow showing up, which she does. So the, that's the third kind of perspective that we see this all happening from is Anne Darrow. And she has this gorgeous moment they are, they, they go to Central Park. He steps onto what he assumes is solid ground and it's this frozen pond. And it's Kong's first time ever interacting with ice. And I only, I feel like at this point, Peter Jackson is kind of showing off a little bit mm -hmm. uh, with, with CG because there's so many things here. It's like this giant ape and his hair is moving in, in, in animated in a way that's believable. He's sliding around on ice, which is a whole other layer of physics and interaction of giant objects and stuff. It's like, and snow. And then the lighting from the, the street lamps uh, and the way that it's hitting him, it's all mm -hmm. beautiful. And it all comes together and almost none of it is tangible. All, almost all of it is just animated. Yeah, um, very memorable moment for sure. But then we get a fourth perspective, which is the army. And I don't think you got this character. Uh, <laughs> in the, yeah, in definitely the not. Version. The army does not make that big of an impression. Okay. There is a guy that gets this monologue. I'm going to read it in, in, in its entirety because it's oh, wow. wonderful. So there's, there's a, the Kong is rampaging around the city. It's after they've shown like that artillery blast that uh, hits, that explodes the pond and Anne barely escapes from that. And then he's like running towards the, this is the point where he's running towards the Empire State Building. He's stomping on, on trucks and knocking machine guns out of the way. And then Peter Jackson cuts to this truck full of soldiers and this one guy, I don't know how to describe this guy. I kind of, man, I wish you had seen it so that like <laughs> you would get the, it's, it's the tone of voice that this guy is doing more than anything. <laughs> he's taking it. He's an army captain of like an army officer. He probably captain, lieutenant. I don't know exactly. He's in the truck driving really fast towards wherever. He's got like a, a 10 or 11 troops in the truck with him and he's pumping them up for their battle. And he goes, listen up, this and this is, I mean, this is not an exaggeration of how he's talking. <laughs> he also kind of has maybe like, he's like older and he has maybe like a little bit of a lisp or something. And I think okay. all of this is very deliberate for the depiction. Listen up. This is New York City and this is sacred ground. You hear me? It was built for humans by humans, not for stinking lice infested apes. 
The thought of some mutant gorilla crapping all over the streets of this fair city fills me with disgust. So this is how it's going to be. We find it, we kill it, we cut its ugly head off, and we ram it up. And in this moment, Conrado, the truck gets slammed through the air and flies into a wall. And that's the last we see of these characters. Wow. Wow. That's it's great. funny. That it's real funny. I feel like that they might have cut that out thinking that it must, some people would see it like maybe like an Iraq war kind of thing, commentary about maybe. like New York, you know, like 9-11, like, you know, this is sacred ground, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, I can see So that. maybe, can see you know, that. it's 2005. We're in the middle of that period. So maybe someone thought like, ah, I don't know, we want to keep this in. That's a good, yeah, that's a good call out because it might, it, that might be why it's cut. I would say, I would assume it's most likely because it just feels the tone of it is it's it's a different movie for five seconds. It's a different, <laughs> it's a comedy for, right. I guess, like 15 seconds because he gives this speech. It's this rousing thing. We're going to kick its ass. We're going to, ah, mid-sentence, <laughs> slammed into a wall by Kong. It's right. very, it's a good punchline. <laughs> the Everything about it, it's like over the top, this is these people are ridiculous and it's it's fun i think it's i think it's him having fun and i think in the editing booth for the theatrical cut he was like i was having too much fun here this one's just for me it can also be like i mean the army does end up taking down kong so Mm -hmm. making too much fun of them minimizing the threat when it's like the climax of the movie and the the tragedy of the movie kind of hinges on the army's destructive potential, you know? So that could be another reason why you would get rid of that. Yeah, there is an alternate ending to King Kong, and I don't remember if it was the original version or the De Laurentiis version, uh, but there's an alternate ending that I know Peter Jackson was was definitely aware of. Jack gets gets in a plane. Jack is actually like, maybe he's still a writer, but he, part of his story is that he like is a pilot or maybe right. was a fighter pilot. He gets in one of the planes and he is closer to Kong in this version. And he actually protects Kong and shoots down the other planes to protect Kong. Uh, in the video game, in the, in the PlayStation 2 video game, there, there's like a uh, you play as Jack for most of the game, but if you unlock Kong, you get to play as Kong. There's like an alternate ending of the game where it's that ending where Jack uh, oh. is flying around, like shooting down the other the planes. planes, which I can definitely understand why they didn't go in that direction because there's nothing about Jack where it's earned this like character churn of I care more about the life of this giant mutant gorilla than I do about my fellow mm-hmm. New Yorkers in you or like men in uniform or whatever like yeah he just he just couldn't like it doesn't make sense cuz nobody in the movie could look at Kong in that way, except for Anne, because she's the only one who's interacted with him on a level that you would be like, this creature, I understand it in a way that makes me connect with them and see their, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better word, their humanity. I mean, it's a, it's an ape, but you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they're being. Yeah, it's, it's like I, when the army does show up in New York, I'm almost questioning, like, A, is the, is it really necessary? But also, like, am I, like, why am I asking that question? Of course, they have to do something. They can't, you can't just not respond <laughs> to, to a giant ape rampaging. A giant ape. And in 1933, like, they don't know what this is. They don't have experience dealing with 
there's not something like this that they've dealt with. It's just, we have to throw whatever we've got at this thing. It's horrifying. It's terrible, but I, I don't, I think it might be blameless. It's almost blameless. Uh, the only person that really deserves blame, I guess, it's is Carl. Venom. Yeah. <laughs> the one person who, who washes his hands at the end of the movie. And also maybe Peter Jackson, because I, I do have a question about you, because we, we talked about, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge this, even if we're not going to solve it, obviously, Peter Jackson didn't solve it, but we talked a little bit about like the depiction of the tribes people. Mm-hmm. What about, Conrado, the depiction of the depiction of the tribes people? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, um, because because I just I, wrote down, oh no, <laughs> it's pretty bad. I yeah. mean, it is historically accurate, but as we know mm-hmm. from history, a lot of racist stuff happened yeah. in history. So the depiction is bad, and I even think those actors might be doing blackface. I wasn't sure. I was looking for it. I think that Peter Jackson at least had the decency, the decency not to do to that. I hope so because it definitely. Even though I th- I would push the back makeup that- makes it look like because that's what would happen in a, in in the real world, right? Yeah, in, it would be white dancers in blackface for yeah. sure. Uh, and and I thought if they're yeah if they're going for historical accuracy, that's what it would be. But I rewound it and watched it a few times to see if it was that. I might have been fooled, but. I, I don't think it was that. But again, I, let's not let's not try to give Peter Jackson too much no. credit for like being sensitive to racism. <laughs> yeah, not his forte. But yeah, it's 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 That's rough. pretty bad. It's, it's still rough, but at least I guess it's making you think about how much worse it was 70 years ago. And yeah, one other thing, generous. I mentioned that whole thing about Jack Driscoll. He does when he's driving that cab through the city, there is a moment where he like ends up on the sidewalk because he's just trying to get away from Kong or get lead Kong to somewhere. He I rewound this runs over two people, just runs them over. It's like, I guess, I guess it's at this point, everyone's just doing what, everyone's desperate. Everyone's just doing what they got to do. Peter Jackson made it a point, in, at least in the extended cut, to show you Jack Driscoll hmm. in his attempts to do something about Kong also ran over a couple of people on the sidewalk, just some bystanders. It's interesting. Just collateral that, damage, you know? Yeah, there's another level. I guess the movie does have that also that theme to it about fixation and obsession with one goal disregarding other stuff you know carl with his movie in this moment jack's trying to save Anne. kong with getting Anne. okay that like myopic yeah i think you can make an argument that the movie's commenting on that if you if you want it i guess yeah so then why wasn't uh why wasn't jimmy reading moby dick on on the way to the island (laughs) i mean to be honest he could have been reading any book (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> green eggs and ham yeah <laughs> uh okay the that's that's basically all of everything i have about the movie i we talked for almost two and a half hours but that's less than the runtime of the movie <laughs> one other one other thing i guess like this is not important but i did i just want to i just want i liked i liked it so much it made me smile so much that i wrote it down uh, so hopefully maybe it caught your attention too, and you'll have something profound to say about it. But Jack's play at the end, Jack goes from this tweety twerp, as he's described, like playwright, writing, like trying to write like about a, life to what? Yeah. Yeah. No, he seems at the beginning, they make him seem like he's some kind of like Clifford Odette's, like kind of like there socially conscious playwright yep. from the, they say he's with the theater, with the, what was it called? The 
FDRs, like the whole theater group, the group theater, okay. I think it was called in the 30s, was this initiative of like kind of socialist playwrights who were trying to do like, you know, plays about the real man and whatever, kind of Barton Fink like. And, and then he writes Bosom Buddies. Yeah, he writes a, a comedy that's like a farce for this dude dressed up as a lady. Yeah, it's. It's Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. It really took me off surprise. Like, I guess the premise, is, from what I can gather from this little bit of dialogue we get, is because this was just the way that these actors were delivering these lines were delightful. So he took me to this fancy fresh re- French restaurant, and halfway through the hors d'oeuvres, he clutches <laughs> my hand. And then this this woman that she's talking to, and this is, and that's when he told you how he felt. I love everything she is doing. I don't know this actress's name, but she just has this moment where where the actress who Jack Driscoll wrote this part for Anne and he tells her that mm-hmm. and he also lets her read some of this play and she's asking him like, you know, what's it about? And they have this bit back and forth about, no, it's in this, it's in the subtext. Mm. And he doesn't tell Anne how he feels about her. Mm-hmm. So he puts that in this play and this woman says, yeah, he said it was not about the words. And then this actress I love goes, oh, please, if you feel it, you say it. It's really very <laughs> simple. <laughs> <laughs> that play does not make you want to sympathize with Jack Dr- Like, you know, like he's presented as this good writer. The, uh-huh. play, he's, the play is presented as this beautiful thing he's doing for End Arrow. What we see of the play leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it looks like, it basically it looks like a sitcom or like a farce. Like it's, it's yeah. crazy. But uh, it's not, not yeah. what we would expect it from this playwright, from Jack Driscoll. Mm-hmm. It's also, that's also never a good idea to write a character who's supposed to be good at writing Mm -hmm. and then showing their work in a fictional movie or or show because it's never going to live up to the idea. It's it's always going to seem bad because like, what are you going to do? Write a whole other play that is going to be excellent and then only use it as for a little snippet in your other, in your movie. Here's, here's my argument for it. I think it adds to, because my argument adds to Andero's character and that's the only reason that I feel like it's appropriate to close my thoughts on, on Peter Jackson's King Kong with this, of all things. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is my argument, if I have to make a case for that element. Jack had this experience on Skull Island. He fell in love with Anne Darrow, and Anne Darrow's philosophy, when she, when she meets Carl Denham at the very beginning, and he says, you know, you're the saddest girl I've ever seen. You're perfect. You know, this role is, is made for you. She turns it down because she says, no, that's not me. You've got me wrong. I'm not the saddest girl in the world. That's not who I want to show to the world. I want to make the world laugh. Jack Driscoll goes from being this socially conscious playwright, the FDR group. He has these experiences with Anne. He sees her worldview and he is changed forever by that. When he comes back to New York, instead of writing his old material, he shifts to farces and comedies, and he embraces Anne's philosophy. This, mm-hmm. again, makes Anne Darrow the most powerful and influential character in the movie. She affects everybody, she, everybody that she comes into contact with. She touches their life. She, in some ways, improves it. Um, definitely not in the case of Kong, <laughs> but it's not her fault. And she's doing her best, and she, and she brings a smile to the world. Sure. And that... That's the message of King Kong, right? That's P- that's oh. Peter Jackson wanted to, to take away. Yeah, I'll buy that for a dollar. 
what are your what are your final thoughts on Kong? Wrap up wrap up King Kong before we get to my bonus questions. Um, okay. I think I'm really into this theory that I've developed that this is very much a personal movie in which Peter Jackson is working through his feelings about being a successful director. And yeah, I'm going to stick to that. I'm going to think more about that. And and this is the thing that it's probably making me like the movie more coming out of this discussion than I did coming in. So I will take that. And I, and I think that's probably the most rewarding way of of thinking of the movie. The the most rewarding way of watching the movie is to just bask in the cool action sequences, especially in the Skull Island section. It is, and that's why I recommend the extended cut. I want to personally recommend it to you, Conrado, but also, listeners, if you've only watched the theatrical cut and you like dinosaurs, which I assume you do because you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> check it out because it is rewarding with extra footage of dinosaurs, some that you didn't see in the theatrical cut at all, and it's mostly extra action. It's mostly extra meat, not extra bread. Real quick, you said, I think we both landed on, this is definitely a plus one for dinosaurs. Yeah. You still feel that way? Yeah. Uh, robots. Is this a plus one neutral or minus one with robots? Mm. I have a good reason to ask this question. Yeah, I, I, my initial thought was neutral, but actually I think this might be a minus because if there was some robot, maybe he could have like done something about this and prevent the, the, the whole thing from becoming a tragedy. So I'm going to say minus. Okay. The uh, Universal Studios King Kong ride uh, burned down years ago. And when this Kong came out, I don't know if it was before or after the, this movie came out, but... Uh, when that ride burned down, they went to Peter Jackson and they were like, well, we don't have the Kong ride anymore, but there's a new Kong. So will you let us make a new Kong ride with your Kong instead of the classic Kong? And mm -hmm. so now the new King Kong ride at Universal Studios, which I haven't, I haven't actually been on it, but apparently it's all based around this King Kong. So that means that there is a giant robot Kong out there. The original giant robot Kong, was in the movie uh, The Wizard, which was reviewed on Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Go back and check that out in your podcast feed. And we did rate that as, that was part of the justification <laughs> for that being that movie being on the podcast. But uh, it's all connected. And I would say that because this movie resurrected one of my favorite rides at Universal Studios, and I can look forward to one day visiting Orlando, Uh, or maybe it's in California. Maybe it's, I don't know which one it's at, or maybe it's mm -hmm. a both. You know what? I'm going to know in the show notes. When when you look in the show notes, <laughs> I'll have figured that out and I'll put a link to it. But uh, but the fact that it resurrected that ride and I get to one day see a giant robotic Kong again at Universal Studios, gives. I'm going to give it a plus one for robots. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. That was supposed to be real quick. I ended up dragging it out. I'm very sorry. I, I have two bonus questions that, Conrado, you already know what they are because you've been on the show before, but let's start with, Conrado, this is a section of Robots vs. Dinosaurs we call What's Your Snack? Conrado, what's your snack? So these days, especially since we're watching movies from home, although theaters seem to be opening kind of soon, I don't know when I'll be able to go to one, but I'm eating all kinds of stuff while watching movies, and it's great. What I've been really into lately is going to my local Asian supermarket, Japanese supermarket, to be honest. It's like a mini-mart kind of place and getting mm -hmm. like little rice balls, like onigiri balls and eating that. 
that is great. Also pickled ginger from this place, which is, you know, the, the kind that you get with your sushi, but the version that they sell here, it's a little bit sweeter. So it's much easier to eat as a snack and it's really delicious. Okay. This is a, a movie. Uh, King Kong is a blockbuster spectacle movie. And when I watch that kind of thing, I, I want popcorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have talked about my struggles on this podcast many times. I don't own a microwave. It's entirely by choice. I don't really, I don't want to have a microwave, but um, the only thing I would use a microwave for is popcorn. For this movie, I really wanted popcorn. So I bought like a bag of popcorn. It was it wasn't the same. It's the pre-popped popcorn. It wasn't the same, but it mm-hmm. it 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 was fine for me. I put it in a bowl, so I felt like I was just eating, you know, popcorn right. at the at the movies. What about stovetop popcorn? Have you ever tried that? I have. It's disastrous. It, yeah, I'm not. I, it for me, I, I'm I'm a disaster when I try to make it. It's not a disastrous concept. I see. I can't. Right. I just can't do it. I don't have the coordination to do it without burning it or under under popping it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, someday soon we'll all be together again eating popcorn in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That's the important thing. I also, I, sh- I shouldn't eat that much popcorn. So it's good <laughs> that I don't have easy access to it. Conrado. Yeah. This movie was very well cast. Peter Jackson works with some big actors, some great actors. And I, I think the most debatable one is Jack Black, but I land on the side of his, I like his depiction of Carl Denham and it's refreshing and it's, it's more interesting because it's genuinely funny. Okay. But there's a lot of contention. A lot of people would have recast him or some of the other characters in this movie. Conrado, Mm -hmm. would you recast anybody in this movie if you could recast them with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito? And how would that improve Peter Jackson's King Kong? Okay. Um, so this is tough because I do love Danny DeVito and Whoopi and I do love some of the performances in, in King Kong, but I, it, so, but I don't want to give some of these lame characters to these amazing actors. So I want to recast them in good parts. So as much as I do enjoy Jack Black as Carl, I think Danny DeVito would slay that part. He would be great as a, like a Hollywood director type. And well, the other thing that you can do with DeVito is just make him calm. And make, instead of having King Kong, just make a giant Danny DeVito. I would watch that movie. I don't know why I didn't think of that when I asked the question. I don't know why that didn't immediately come to mind. So that would be a masterpiece, but maybe too good to be true. I don't know. It's something that our eyes can handle. I'm not sure. (laughs) What I will say is definitely, definitely Whoopi as Lumpy the Cook Popeye. I think she would be fantastic. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, go on though, like I expand on that a little bit, elaborate. I, I request elaboration. I, I don't even know what else to say. I think she would slay the part. I think she would be playing Popeye. She would be incredible. Mm-hmm. Would she be, would, would she still be uh, shaving a man's face with walnut porridge? And <laughs> she would do making... exactly everything the same way that Andy Serkis does. She would just bring a whoopee spin to it. But she can ad lib <laughs> a couple of things. So what you're saying is we're we're replacing Andy Serkis with Danny DeVito, but we're also replacing Andy Serkis with Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> what I'm saying is get Andy Serkis out of my movies. <laughs> <laughs> so you're taking the best, the hardest working performer. 
in this movie. The best performance in the movie, <laughs> the both live action and CGI, has been the, the man who like went and 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 lived with gorillas at the zoo for eight <laughs> months or something to like study them, and then went on to make the the uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which man? One quick thing I want to say because like the have you are, are you a fan of that trilogy? The the, the recent. Apes? apes trilogy i like the first movie i didn't care for the second i really hated the third one. Oh wow i'm the complete opposite i was a little bit lukewarm to the first one but i liked it the second one i was like oh now i'm a fan of this franchise and i was all in on the third one and woody harrelson was wonderful but the reason i bring those up is we talked about like technological achievement spectacle andy circus was was kind of screwed uh, in the Lord of the Rings when the, in the first one out of all awards for it because what he did on in as Gollum his motion capture performance as Gollum mm-hmm. no one had ever done that before no one right. had ever done that style of creating a character visually to the point where the uh, they they had no category to consider Andy Serkis for anything he technically isn't credited as an actor in the film it's like a different type of credit. Hmm. So to circumvent that for King Kong, that's the whole reason that that Jackson cast Andy Serkis as Lumpy was to give him a named character that could go in the credits as oh, Andy Serkis as Lumpy, not Andy Serkis motion capturing, doing the Kong. voice of movements of Kong, right? Mm-hmm. So he gave him both. Um but that also like that that also culminated in Andy Serkis playing Caesar the ape in the Planet of the Apes movies. And so like just in terms of spectacle, the third the third of those the third movie in that trilogy has this moment, I think it's the opening sequence. It's CG apes riding CG horses through sne- CG snow that is stick- sticking to their CG fur. And my thought when I see it is how did they train these horses to ride gun to ride horses while wearing armor and holding guns? How did right. they do it? And it's just none of it is actually a physical thing that you could touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm telling you, like, just watch that opening scene of that movie. You'll be blown away by by how it looks and how it convinces you that what you're looking at is real. Yeah, um, definitely. My issues with those movies are not with the visual effects. Those are pretty impre- incredible. I don't. I don't have any notes about your recasting <laughs> King Kong. I think it's absolutely perfect. I would miss Andy Serkis, but you know he's. But he's got. He's got the Planet of the Apes movies, so he'll be fine. Conrado, do you have anything left to say about Peter Jackson, King Kong, about dinosaurs, about robots, or maybe about uh, your next upcoming projects? I want to say, first of all, thank you for having me. It was great to come back. I loved talking about AI when we did that, and I love talking about King Kong now. So it's always a pleasure to be here. Literally anytime, I would be glad to come back and talk some more movies. I love robots, I love dinosaurs, and I love robots versus dinosaurs. And if you liked me and liked hearing me talk, definitely check out Foreign Invader, which is should be available on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you use to listen to podcasts. Lou was on the show, so I know you like Lou probably if you listen to the show, so why don't you check that out? Maybe you like the podcast and you listen to the other episodes. Or it could be the Howard Stern thing where people are only listening to me because they hate me and like they want to hear, uh, they want like ammunition, more more fuel. 
to add to the fire of hating me, which I'm okay with. I'll take it. Listeners, I'll take it. Uh, (laughs) In which case, definitely listen to my interview. I say a lot of really obnoxious, pretentious things about Super Mario there. So you can enjoy that. Uh, (laughs) Or if you like me, I say a lot of really profound, interesting things about Super Mario on that podcast. Yeah, very profound. It's a very highbrow podcast. It was a very fun podcast. I had a lot of fun talking to you about it. I really love having you on this show, Robots versus Dinosaurs. Please definitely, listeners, check out, if you haven't listened to our coverage of AI, it is, like I said, one of my favorite movies, and I think our discussion on it is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had uh, with somebody about a movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I had an incredible time. So thank you again for being here today, Conrado. It was, it was a pleasure. We talked about another fantastic film. Cannot recommend highly enough. And I also can't recommend Wormholes.tv highly enough, Foreign Invader, and The Criterion Project. So scroll down to the show notes and check those out. And I'm really bad at saying goodbye. Uh, so Conrado, I'm going to make you close it out and say goodbye to the listener. Goodbye, listeners. Andy Circus as Popeye. Hot Goss with Trash Comedy is the podcast where we trade sweet, sweet facts like they're dirty little pieces of gossip. We're a New York-based comedy team and we're joined each week with a funny, delightful friend. After each person shares their facts, we rate those facts from, oh my god, that's not hot, that's as cold as the coldest ice you've ever seen, to, oh my god, that's so spicy, my mouth is gone. So if that made sense to you, then please join us on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts.